Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Listen to this. This is the tape I found downstairs. It has been a number of years since I began excavating the ruins of Kandar with a group of my colleagues. Now my wife and I have retreated to a small cabin in the solitude of these mountains. I believe I have made a significant find in the Kandarian ruins, a volume of ancient Sumerian burial practices and funerary incantations. It is entitled Naturan de Manto, roughly translated Book of the Dead. From the gnarled woods of Michigan to the sun-kissed skyline of L.A., we are Halloweenies! You said, I hope you understand when you read this letter that you're better off without me. Come surround me in stormy weather. Stormy weather. It always surrounds me. Greetings and welcome yet again to Halloweenies and Evil Dead podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Justin Fake Shemp Gerber. And I'll tell you what, we're going to be taking you a little bit of a detour that we hope isn't too much of a drag about drag me to hell. That's right. We're <laughs> going to be talking all things 2009's Drag Me to Hell, written by the Ramies, Sam and Ivan, produced by bad boy Bobby Tappert, and of course... Directed by the great Sam Raimi. Why, you ask? Well, I think that that will be made rather clear as the episode goes on. Also, if you've seen the movie, I mean, there's a reason why we opted to go this direction as opposed to covering the love of the game. Uh, oh, what's that? Ironically enough, the evil umpire is declaring play ball. So let's follow the rules. Go around the call. discussing the very first time we saw dragged me to hell. And I have a feeling that we weren't, you know, uh, teenagers or in elementary school like we were when we saw the first three Evil Dead films. Let's start off on the south side of Chicago with Blue Island's own. This is Mike, Financial Crisis Vanderbilt. Oh. And I was 29 when I saw when I saw Drag Me to Hell, so you can do the math. I went that summer and I went to see the new Star Trek movie. The J.J. Abrams Star Trek, his first Star Wars movie. And... <laughs> <laughs> the film broke halfway through it, or the projector broke. I don't even know if there was film in theaters at that point. So, you know, I didn't want to watch the beginning of Star Trek again. It was like halfway through the movie, so I went over, used my pass to go see Drag Me to Hell, and uh, I, I I enjoyed it, but uh, nobody enjoyed it more than the four like young teenage girls who were in there who had the time of their lives watching this movie. And after every big scare, would be, I hate this movie. And then, of course, continue to watch the movie. And you mentioned For the Love of the Game. I have a funny For the Love of the Game story, just that I remember when it came out, and I was dating a girl at the time who was surprised that I wanted to see it because it was a romantic movie about baseball. There are two things that really don't interest me at all. But, oh, but it's directed by Sam Raimi, and she just rolled her eyes. <laughs> it's, I had the opposite because I loved Sam Raimi and I loved baseball, but just the trailer alone. And I love Kevin Costner baseball movies for fuck's sake. But he's done what? Even, three big ones, right? Yeah, three big ones. And even watching this trailer, I thought, 
No, I had no interest. I didn't see it until it was out on good old. Remember DVDs? I rented it years later. It's fine. It's way too long. Way too long. They should have just stuck to the actual baseball game, in my humble opinion. Yeah. But that's for our next podcast on For Love of the Game. That was a little teaser we want to give out there. But let's go uh, to another section of Chicago. I guess this person would be southeast of me, but further southeast than my brother. So who, would, who does that leave it down to? Well, you know, you could have just used the baseball side because I'm about two blocks away from Wrigley Field, not to give my address away. But look, there are a lot of houses and townhouses, townhouses, uh, I don't know, (laughs) condos around here. I guess there are townhouses around here, walk-ups. Close enough. But yeah, good luck finding it. Um, Well, let me give the exact address. I think I've got a machine. Yeah, well, you got it. Uh, It's a creepy number. No, I'm just joking. But uh, maybe you'll see me walk around with my own hellhound in Shiloh. Drag me to hell. Oh, my God. All right. So 2009. I guess at the time, I, yeah, I had just graduated DePaul, or I was about to graduate DePaul with my master's. And I think around, I saw this in South Florida, though. Um, so I was already in Chicago, but I was down in South Florida. I was going to visit my friend. And also, I think my brother was graduating high school at that point. So, yeah, it, it kind of felt like there was a huge moment in life. You know, like I was, like, this was the next chapter. So I, I guess at the time, I was a little too distracted to, like, I don't know, like, go in and be like, oh, this is Sam Raimi's new movie. I think it was more like, hey, it's Friday. What do you want to do? Oh, let's go see a movie. Oh, there's a horror movie out. Me sitting in the theater is going, oh, it's a Sam Raimi movie? How interesting. And, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to be able to kind of sit there and go, oh, yeah, this I was blown out of my mind, and this is a fucking favorite movie that year. But I think I remember just, like, mostly walking out and chuckling and, and being like, oh, that was a hell of an ending, and that was that. But, and I think we'll discuss this in this episode, but I think that the case, this is pretty much a case of, seeing where Hollywood's, you know, filmmaking has gone, at least in the mainstream level, and also particularly where Raimi's career has gone, I think both of those things has, have, have certainly made me really appreciate and love this movie over the, what, what is it, 13, 14 years, I guess, oh, since it's come Unlucky out. 13. Unlucky 13, how about that? So 13 years later. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm excited to talk about this one, and I, we, we just happened to revisit it a couple of months ago when it was on Hulu. I think it's still on Hulu, actually. I just, I don't know. I just came to mind. I was like, we should cover this because this does feel like it's at least somewhat related to the evil dead world. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see where you guys all lie on that, you know, that yeah. topic. But, I, I mean, it's unquestionably in that same, the sub sub genre, which is Sam Raimi horror movies, you know, it's yeah. his own kind of sub genre. Uh, let's go now to somebody who I guess technically would be uh, Northwest, but still Southeast of my residence. Uh, who and who is that? Well, this is Wolfman Mac Ganoush Gerber, and I I'm about six minutes drive in the Delta from Wrigley Field, just to keep the baseball thing going. I know that when I first saw this film here in Chicago, 2009, uh, when the film came out, I I had to have been with I think I was with my best friend Chris and or Dan maybe I I, I can't really remember. It was I've kind of felt like Rothman where. When I left, I was like pleasantly surprised that it was as good as it, as it was. And I remember upon the next few days, really looking back on it, going like, yeah, yeah that was pretty good. Like that, <laughs> that solid ending, uh, pretty brutal. It's just like fun. Uh, and, and yeah, I kind of aligned with Mike in the sense that it definitely, I think I was just kind of like, well, this is probably as close to an evil dead thing we're ever going to see ever again. <laughs> you know, like at the time I feel like that, that was just kind of where I was at. 
but yeah, so it, I, I watched it, rewatched it the other day, a couple of days ago. And man, I had a blast watching it this time. And I don't know, maybe it's just having seen everything that comes after or what, but I just, I think my expectations were somewhere when I first saw it. And now I could just really appreciate it for what it is. And I really dug it this time. So I'm really excited to get into it. Yeah, I remember this. This looking back, this is one of the only instances that that break my my cardinal rule of don't get excited when you hear about an audience response at a film festival, um, because usually that means absolutely nothing. But in this case, this movie had a big reception. I think it was at South by Southwest where it premiered, no. and people were going crazy for it. Can and again, like I it said, was- nowadays when that happens, I don't trust it at all. I don't trust it at all. But for me, this landed. I saw it with a friend of mine who wasn't even a big horror fan. Um, his wife had absolutely no interest in seeing this film, so we went to go see it. <laughs> and great crowd, and he he loved it just as much as I did. And I really was, the expectations for me were high because I really felt like, wow, Sam Raimi's actually going back to this. I thought that we had lost him forever after the, the Spider-Man trilogy, especially you know how that trilogy ended, which I'm sure Mike Rothman will be talking about a little bit too. And I was thrilled, and I think it's extraordinarily sad that, with the exception of, I guess, the Ash versus Evil Dead pilot, there was a 13-year gap where he only directed one movie after this, which is, in, which is wild to think about. Yep. But we'll be talking about all that shortly. But before we talk about that, we've got some <laughs> news coming out of Woodsboro, folks, which means I'm transitioning into a new category called, all right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. <laughs> See this? This is my boomstick. It's a 12 gauge double barreled Remington. S Mart's top of the line. You can find this in the sporting goods department. So there's actually a lot of news here on the scream front here. It's confirmed that the characters Tara, Sam, Mindy, and Chad, played by Jen Ortega, Melissa Barrera, Jasmine Savoy Brown, and Mason Gooding, respectively, are back. Or Scream. What were we going to call this one? Six Cream? You know, there have been a lot of talk about that. Yeah, I guess Six Cream works. I mean, but does it really work? Because, like, at least the five, it looks like an S. Six (laughs) doesn't really look like an S, so it's kind of just like, all right, now we're just putting numbers where the S is. I I mean, Or what was the other thing I said? Scray 6M? Yeah. No, that's too much. No. There was somebody online had one that was like, if they just called it Stab or if they called it, like... Because, you know, you have the first five movies that kind of looks like a, you know, there's a total, there's a, there's a hold to that, you know? Um, but I don't know. I feel like, it, and I think I saw someone say like screams might be a good one. That could be cool. But then you lose the number. I feel like, well, they already lost the number, oh, so, so it doesn't I, matter. So I saw this morning another title called Sore Throat. Oh boy. Oh. <laughs> the epilogue, as it were. Uh, Let's just. I think we gotta go six cream. The kid yeah, a bit first it. of all, and, and the fact that six it's even cream. dumber than the five cream, right? Because <laughs> it's not. It's not gonna be called Scream Six. No, it's not gonna be called Scream Six. But to be fair, there probably will be a title. What about Creamix? Creamix. No, Adding the I X the S? on the end. Of- <laughs> Are you getting rid of the S for no reason? I, I love this conundrum for oh, like, the production. Like six cream makes any sense either. I, well, that, this is the thing. You had it so easy. You had four fucking movies that all have numbers tied to it. All you had to do is put a fucking five at the end. Everyone would watch it anyway. It, it doesn't, it's not going to change the box office success of anything. 
And I know that maybe they were trying to make some sort of definitive statement that was like a new era. And, and I get it because the movie does feel like that. But it, why complicate this? Like, what are you going to do? Because you know there's going to be three more sequels after this. So what are you going to keep doing? Come up with like, you know, I, well, I just don't know what they're going to do here. You do the last, I know you did the last summer treatment where it's not, it'll be like Scream Again. Oh, that's fine. And then, and then scream, scream again or something. I don't know. Screamed, screamed, dad. scream, scream like, with me or so. I don't know. Like there's, there's, there's ways to do like the, now it's like the worded title. Yeah. I guess there's that. I, I, I guess you would, I would have waited until like scream six to do that though. <laughs> like, I, I do have a good title for this. Yeah. How about like something like scream resurrection or scream, God. scream dominion or something like How that. How about scream, scream dead reckoning. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I know what you do. Hold on, hold on. Now picture, picture the title "Scream" like okay. in the the Scream type typeface, right? Mm-hmm. Now picture the M broken up into listen. Oh, I know what's going on here. Three mm-hmm. parts, right? So then it's basically a two with a V in the middle, right? Or it's Scream with the VI, the yeah. Roman numeral for six. But uh-huh. the only problem with that is you got to explain to these ADHD-rattled people, what, 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 where's Scream 5? I can't find Scream 5 on my iTunes search screen, you know, or, you know, or my, my it's Apple a mess. TV, I should say. It's a mess. It's a, Honestly, it, they probably all, all these companies, all these production heads and studio heads are probably just, they look to the Halloween franchise and they, and they go... We, it doesn't matter what we call it. People will follow it. They'll follow the time. They're, they're all the different timelines, they'll figure it out. Eventually. Maybe they'll just call it, you know they'll call it? Uh, Scream 2. To really confuse God. it again. Like, with, <laughs> with, the two, with the Roman numeral as opposed ah, to the that'd numeral? That would be good. Not even, not even Rob Zombie had the decency to change it to the actual... No, because at that <laughs> point he was numeral. like just coming back for the check. At, you know, he was yeah. done. God bless his heart. Yeah. Or sc- Scream 2 Survivors... Well, Mac, you mentioned Survivors, Mac. I should also point out that another casting announcement was made. And no doubt there'll be a lot of insurance on this particular cast member. Hayden Panettiere is playing Herbie. She's back after the fans demanded it over the last uh, 11 years. Hey, Justin, let me tell you, I just love to see when the fans get exactly what they want. I mean, the fans deserve it. I think that's a good thing. Every time, the fans always know what's right. If you look at Rise of Skywalker or any any good IP of the last 20 years, that's why it works, because the fans are always right. What's really interesting about that casting is, it doesn't it kind of support the whole thing in the new scream about yeah. the toxic fandom like oh ruling. absolutely that's <laughs> well no, see but mac but you're 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 making you're making a distinction toxic fans are bad regular fans oh. who are obsessed with the films are good oh, okay uh, okay regular okay. regular okay toxic fans who critique the media the content that is put out there and maybe have valid uh criticisms of something they love for years are but they know, don't like it they're awful they forget they're yeah, okay. they, they, they're just they're just rude and mean and everything. Now, good fans, fans who just kind of continue to watch Roll anything that is anything that is thrown into their lap and embrace it and stand it. They're they're good. They're they're you know that's that's sure. who you want to. They're, they're like pure. the uh, Apollo Creeds, right? They're like the ones that get back up, get back in the into the fight. That's who you want to appeal to. That's right. Not that's toxic the best about to make. nothing. Nothing toxic about them at all. 
And especially, no. you definitely want to appeal to anyone who has, you know, a Twitter account that is over 10,000 and also, you know, ties to a big pub and, um, you know, any, <laughs> you know, celebrity, you know, connections that you could make and whatnot. But it's a great era we live in. And I'm just absolutely happy, um, you know, I didn't, d- didn't die somewhere in my 20s. I think if you, for, Mike, let's say, for instance, you, you, you po- you're like in your 20s or 30s and you post a screenshot from, from Stranger Things with, with uh, 11 in the classroom and saying, my God, when when she looks at Will for reassurance and cries, <laughs> and then it gets like ten thousand likes. You yeah, know, it's a fun era. No, it's there. it's it's definitely great. I mean, when I wake up in the morning, I'm totally just gung ho to like get on Twitter and just get in, involved in the discourse. Uh, anyway, who's the the the, the latest casting? So this <laughs> there's, has been there's six sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but that, that is big news that because Kirby is is like I did like I said, she is a, definitely a fan favorite, yeah, she's especially great. for this next generation. So. It would be very funny, though, and I mean, the reaction would be hilarious to see if she gets killed off in the pre-credits. Yeah, right? <laughs> like oh, my God. The fury of the fandom would be pretty funny to watch. Uh, if that happened, oh, I, I would funny. do the opposite of what I did in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where I would literally stand up and, and like and start applauding like a fucking asshole. Just, like, <laughs> just to be like, what? that is the most ballsy thing that I've seen in any modern mainstream horror movie to do that to the fan because then that would be you would absolutely be factoring into what they were talking about in scream five and that's great yeah and but you know yeah i think it'd be cool if like it opened with gail and kirby in different places mm-hmm. both getting off so that the mystery isn't that there's more than one villain we know there is immediately yeah so like that that's not, so that's so you're not just like okay well who well, that, well they were here when they were here so you so then you're just really like okay this we really like have no clue what's going on but well the good news is we'll have all the answers in less than a year it yeah. feels like we're back wow. in the 80s again with like this movie's coming out a year later it's good uh, it's kind of exciting hey. it's kind of exciting you know I will also say that another casting addition that was just announced not Dylan McDermott but Dermot Mulrooney. <laughs> who uh, has recently appeared in horror movies like Insidious, Chapter 3, and, and Uma, which is Sam Raimi production, yeah. by the way. Uma, I believe, right? True. And, Uma. and Uma. Uh, popped up in Righteous Gemstones. Yes, he did. That's right. I like uh, Dylan McDermott. I'm happy that he's joining the cast. Well, I got bad news. It's Dermot Mulrooney's going to be in this. That's what I said. That's what I said, Dylan McDermott. <laughs> you did. You, <laughs> happy you to have said him. Dermot Mulrooney. That's right. Ha- you happy said to it. have him back. I like uh, him when he. I, I used to. There was a stretch there for for Dermot. No, yeah, yeah, Dermot Moroni. Fucking Christ, you guys. Where <laughs> he would pop up, and you'd kind of have to root for him because it's like, oh man, I haven't seen him in a while. Like when he popped up in Zodiac, I remember being like so excited. You know, it's like, oh yeah, Dermot Moroni. Well, I just remember because for years he was obviously on The Practice with William Shatner, and so I was so used to seeing him on that show. No, I'm so, oh, I'm sorry. That was that's Boston Public, or no, that was Dylan, was in... Dylan. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was Dylan McDermott. That was oh, not Dylan, Dylan McDermott. Okay. Yeah, Dylan, Dylan McDermott, McDermott was in the practice. Dylan McDermott. But he would show up on things movie. like Enlightened, and I mm. will say, in all honesty, in, in real, in reality, okay, all joking aside, like I'm kind of with Mike. I'm I'm on board. I, I like yeah. I like I like the guy. I think he looks great. I think he's aged really, really great. He's kind of like really. Really, really embracing the the silver fox look now, and uh, he looks great. I'm excited to see what who he's going to play. I, he's it, playing a cop. I'm going to say yeah. definitely playing a detective, right? He's playing a cop. It's, it's that's confirmed. He's playing a cop in the new movie. Oh, all right, all right. Here's another thing I like. Give me more adults. 
I, this let's make this an adult franchise. You know, hmm. Let, let's bring some more adults in here. It, it, you know, an adult I think that's, you know, franchise. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> what I mean. You know, I, let's, 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 let's bring in <laughs> Cynthia Nixon. Let's bring in <laughs> Peter let's Gallagher, in, and let's bring oh, in Dermot Mulroney and Dylan McDermott. Let's confuse everybody. <laughs> Mike, you know, that, uh, that would be great if they did that for a meta franchise. I mean, it would yeah. make sense. So uh, sorry, Mike. bring him in. I was just gonna say that's a good point that. You know, and I hate to say because I have not seen these movies, but I understand that this is what the Harry Potter movies did, where the franchise aged with the audience. Yes. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. No, but the, the horror movies are always going to be aimed towards teenagers, right? Yeah. Yeah. They could call I mean, it uh, Scream in the City, you know? Oh, Lord. Yeah, yeah. but they're not going to do that. The, the The whole last film was filled with young people, so they're 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 not going to do that. Well, if somebody but, wants to Google this real quick while I, I, I give this next piece of information, I think Dermot Mulroney was in Sex and the City at one point. Probably. Wants to look it up. I feel like everyone else was. I, learned, I don't think we had this, but there is an actual mini synopsis for the next Scream movie that I thought was pretty illuminating. It says, The Scream saga continues with the four survivors of the Ghostface killings as they leave Woodsboro behind... Yeah. And start a fresh chapter. So we are out of Woodsboro. This is this is, sounds like it's a conscious decision to leave that original quartet behind. <laughs> I bet We're you not they go to Kansas anymore. I bet you they go to fucking Hollywood. Oh my uh, god! Don't say that out loud. No, I, no, we can't be reading no, screen no, free. We no, can't do it. No, no, no. I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna leave, and I think this is gonna. Where be are they gonna go? Chicago, direction. Portland. Hey, maybe they'll film in Chicago. Let's, maybe they'll scream over here. It'd be kind of cool if they like Atlanta. It'll probably be Atlanta, honestly. But yeah, because that's where they film everything. <laughs> you know, you are right. He was. He's. Uh, he's actually was coming back. He was in the Sex in the City. Look with at that. Kristen Davis and Greer Grammer. Guess what? Do you know what uh, date uh, Dermot Moroni was born on? October sixteenth. No, close though. October thirty first. Our namesake, Halloween. Ooh, happy Whoa. Halloween! We've got to get him on. Maybe he should also be in Halloween Ends, you know what I mean? Maybe maybe he could be the one to take down the shape once and for all. You know, I'll tell you what, uh, I saw a Twitter poll asking what their favorite, your favorite uh, horror movie of 2021 yet, and I haven't seen it, but I'm just going to say that it's probably going to be Halloween Ends. All right. Well, oh, Dermot yeah. Mulroney <laughs> shows up and says, hey, Michael, Halloween's my day. And it's... That's and, right. and, 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 <laughs> The extension is is just a poster of it's it's the it's the face off poster, but it's Dermot Mulroney and the shape. Or maybe Michael Myers could somebody make a a note for that Mulroney mask instead. That'd be pretty great. Could somebody make a note a note for that so I can remember to do the Photoshop of that later? Oh yeah, I'll send it to you right now. (laughs) So Mulroney Myers. I I will say, you know, having took thirty years, but my girlfriend Sammy finally got me to watch Friends. I will say. This is something of a reunion, especially if Courtney Cox is back, because Dolmont Maroney was in Friends. Um, oh, that's right. That's right. So that would make, you know, maybe they, maybe they might have some little nods in there. You know, and on that note, as I've been watching Friends, I do wonder, like, why not just bring in, like, Jennifer Aniston or something like that? Or, like, bring in, like, David Swimmer. Like, just go in. Go all in at this point. Just go, like, go full fucking meta. Like, bring in Matt LeBlanc. As like the, in the next one of the next movies or something like that. No, I, I just think, I'm, like, I look, I, I'm in, I'm I, I enjoyed Friends. I enjoyed Friends when it was on, but I don't. We don't need the Friends bandwagon. I, coming, I, I coming, think it would be. If, I mean, <laughs> having Matt LeBlanc or David Schwimmer like be the killer, and then they're the ones to take down Gale. I think uh, that's kind of. You left I think somebody that's kind out. Of a fun man. I, did you leave out Matthew Perry because they're spending too much insurance on Hayden Panettiere? <laughs> 
That's true. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I did leave him out, even though Chandler Bing is one of my favorite characters. Um, and I say that with quotes because, you know, I, this is a background watch. I'm not like, you know, obsessive over it. it? But, we were know. on the break. Oh, boy. His name was Chandler Bong on his Chinandler TV guide. Bong. Matt, go oh, ahead. Oh, real wait, quick. Wait, we also read a little snippet this morning. I don't know how much truth there is about oh, this, yeah. but there's talk about Nev Campbell possibly not returning for Scream 6, which... I don't think anybody here is opposed to, oh, and not because crossed. we don't love Nev Campbell. I, I think because that, I, that character I, is a classic horror character. I think that Nev yeah. Campbell is a legitimately good actor. I don't know if I'm pretty sure we don't need Sydney to be in any more of these movies at this point. It doesn't no. really yeah. make a lot of sense. That's my someone, take. Someone on Twitter brought up a good point that if she sits out like the next two or three and manages to come back like as a snippet or some shit like that in like a, sure. you know, down the road, I'd be down for that. But yeah, I'm, I'm done. I like this, even the last one was kind of pushing it, but they, they owned it and it was great. Um, I did want to throw this out. Would you be game for her to come back in a way that's corollary, but bring back Patrick Dempsey? Because obviously they acknowledge that they're together. He's still a cop. I presumably, what if it's like dormant Moroni, oh, like, like as Sid's his partner watching the kids, but I'm here and I know what we're up against yep. kind of thing. Yeah. I, hey, I'd be, I'd be game. I like him. Well, they, <laughs> they kill off Dempsey. Yeah. And that drives her again. Again, do this couple movies from now. Yeah, exactly. Give yeah. a little break. Let these people, let, you finally got a good new cast here. Let them kind of spread their wings, establish the, establish the franchise. And then you can start to get kind of cute again and bring other people back, you know? Oh, by the way, our, our queen, uh, Melissa Barrera, uh, she just celebrated her birthday recently. Happy so. birthday, How about Sam. That? Yeah, Sam. That just him like call actors by their character names. And I know. Shit all the time. The Happy hundredth anniversary, Sam. Uh, <laughs> I love your I love your karate. Uh, all right, listen, 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 listen. Have you ever heard of the website uh, Blay Disgusting? Oh, I, I I think I work for him. Um, ah, well, I guess we all kind of do here. And we, guess yeah. what? They recently reported on some new quotes from Bruce Campbell, who plays the character uh, Ash Campbell. And the Ash. first three Evil Dead films, as well as Ash vs. Evil Dead, which we'll be covering very soon. Uh, about Evil Dead Rise, in which he's a producer, very hands-on producer, apparently. He said the following, I'm very excited about it. It's going to be really cool and very, very intense. It's dark, a very adult Evil Dead movie. I wouldn't call it a yuck fest. It's pretty tough, pretty hard-hitting stuff. And that's the variation that you have within the Evil Dead franchise and within horror itself. It's all about the filmmaker. Sam Raimi handpicks these people, or these guys, and so Lee Cronin is the guy who directed it, and he's a little bit of a serious dude, so you let him do his thing. So I was of two minds of this personally at first, because at first I thought, let's get back to the, the fun yucks of the first three Evil Deads, or specifically Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness, and even the series. But then I was watching Drag Me to Hell, and I realized I feel like there are so many filmmakers who have been chasing... I mean, I've heard of chasing Amy, but chasing Raimi, and and more often than not, in my humble, that's a in meme, my humble Mike, opinion, you got to put it in notes. Put it in, Mike. Put it in notes. But no, that's um, and I feel like <laughs> it's an almost impossibility because that's what that's what makes Raimi so unique is that he has been somehow able to find not just the balance of humor and horror, but humor that is legitimately funny and not just kind of eh, look at this, you know, that type of what Marvel has devolved into for the most part in many ways. And so I'm again, we'll see what happens. We have not seen a still 
from this movie. <laughs> I have no clue. I have not seen this director's Lee Cronin's first movie. Was it Hold in the Ground? I think it's called. That's uh, that's what I was curious about. We was should that, probably watch this. Right? I know, right? <laughs> like it's sitting. I thought it wasn't out yet, and I just looked it up, and I was it's like, no, it came out years. in 2019. Yeah. I was like, why haven't I watched this yet? But so obviously, it sounds like from what I know about that movie, it's going to be a little more in vain with that. Mac, what do you what do you think about this? What do you think about what I was saying about? Maybe trying to break away from the comedy of it all. I think, you know, I remember I was talking about this earlier and saying that we were really hoping it felt like the other Evil Dead movies and still felt in the same vein. And we were, there was some talk of a, of a tie-in to something from the series, which is very funny. So I don't... I, I'm okay if it's mostly serious with funny moments. Like, I feel like Drag Me to Hell is like that, right? I don't think it's a full-out comedy, but it's got a lot of humor in it. Yeah. But you still take it seriously when it gets scary. So I'm kind of hoping it's it's a little bit more in that vein, but I, I don't know. I, at this point, I'm I'm very optimistic because just because we haven't seen anything. Yeah. And I I I'm just like that we're still anticipating this movie and it's really coming up on the time in which we we hope to see it. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm one way or the other, but I'm still looking forward to it right now. Well, what's the rumored date, Mike? Or the, the rumored month or, or we have a lot of season. people have been kind of like kicking around the idea that it might be like August or September. If it's that, wow. I feel like it's any day that we're going to be seeing something. Um, I, I, I just think it's going to be incredibly dark and, and, and morbid in the same way that the 2013 was the, thir- the 2013 one was, which is fine. I mean, for me, I love Pluto TV. I always have it on and they've been playing the 2013 one a lot. And obviously we're going to be talking about it soon in the next month or so, but man, I had to like turn it off like, like last night because it's just like, it's so fucking unnerving to watch. Like, it's just not like, it's very like, you're just like sitting there and it's like, yeah, this isn't really fun to watch. And even though there are fun moments in there, but there are some really dark and disturbing parts. And I just was kind of like sitting there talking about it with Sammy. I'm like, I kind of appreciate that about it. Like, because I, I think in a different era, maybe if this was 2009 and we, you know, which we'll be talking about with Drag Me to Hell, I would say like, oh, I'd like to get a little bit more, you know, funny kind of hokey movies. But we we're just in such an era where we don't get that sort of like pedal to the metal. Like I'm going to fucking like make you feel uncomfortable watching horror movies unless like, I don't know, Ari Aster makes a fucking movie mm-hmm. that I'm like, I'm ready for it. Like, give me another mean movie. And if they can do that, then I'm, I'm all game. And I think that that's what we're getting here. I mean, all the fucking production shots have just been like about how there's so much blood about how loud it's, it's, you know, it's, it's really unnerving. So I'm, I'm, I'm all in. I'm, I, I, I dim, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, it's hard to weigh in on something that we have literally nothing to, to kind of stand on. Uh, but, that's the, that's, yeah. that's what you know. podcasts are built on. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, no foundation for any thought. But I want to no, feel I uncomfortable. That's the thing. That's yeah. that's the thing because that's what the first one does, and that's what I love about it. So, yeah. Vanderbilt, where do you stand on all this at this point? We're, we're we're maybe two or three months out. You know, last night at the bar, we were just talking about how, even though we every the group that was there at the end of the night, everybody loves horror movies, but you know, horror movies don't scare any of us anymore. Mm-hmm. So if if the new Evil Dead movie is the movie to do it, I'd love it. But I think I think we talked about it a little bit on the Army of Darkness episode. One thing I like looking back at those first three Evil Dead movies is that not including the remake or the TV show or anything, that each one is very different in tone. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm curious to see what they do with this one because it sounds like they're going back to the first one. But what could be a different tone that they could go in or a different subgenre of psychotronic cinema? I mean, the only thing I can think of is go you know, full on sci-fi, but which is they're not doing. But is where else? I guess where else could they go back than back to the original, right? But they, like Mike said, they already did that with 2013. I mean, obviously, I'm interested in seeing it, but I I just don't know if it's going to be as different as I would like it to be. I'm intrigued by the setting of it because hmm. this that is different, right? As opposed to being yes. this isolated cabin in the middle of nowhere, it sounds like we're more in a city landscape and a, and a somewhat populated. I love what uh, horror building, right? So, I love I love when horror movies do that. I yeah, like I love the concept of Jason takes Manhattan, even though the the, the, it's the, the execution of the uh, franchise. You oh know? yeah, they're going from the forest to the main streets of L.A. I mean, that's it's kind of what actually I think this does take place in L.A., doesn't it? Yeah. So uh, maybe we'll, we'll see. Look, literally, all we can all say right now, as of this recording, is we'll just have to wait and see. No clue what this movie's going to look like, sound like anything you guys you know it's been nicer lately and in wisconsin you never quite know when winter is going to be in but it's been nice for like four days in a row and i'm like if sunnier days are coming it's time to fuel up and so i'm going back to my factor meals that no prep no mess i want to hit my weight goals before it's time to hit that beach you've got options like calorie smart protein plus keto Factor has these fresh, never frozen meals, dietitian approved guys. And here's the big thing for me, keeping out of the kitchen as much as possible, two minutes and these meals are ready. So it doesn't matter how busy you are, you've always got time. So treat yourself. They have 35 different meals to pick from, 60 add-ons to choose every week. You're always going to have new stuff to try. Have it whenever you want. It's effortless, guys. So if you'd like to try it yourself, head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off of your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. And so, uh, you know, one, maybe one day we'll be talking about the history of Evil Dead Rise, but for today, let's head on over to Professor Nobi's study and talk about the history and drag me to hell. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. It was written long ago when the seas ran red with blood. It was this blood that was used to ink the book. Alright, so let's play a bit of catch-up between Army of Darkness, which is 1993 and 2009's uh, What's it called again? Oh yeah, Dragon Hell. A lot happened for Sam Raimi in between <laughs> to say the least. those years. Yeah. Uh, I'll give a quick rundown. He, you know, he directed The Quick and the Dead, a Western starring Sharon Stone and a then unknown Leonardo DiCaprio, a then unknown Russell Crowe. The list goes on and on. Great cast. A then unknown Gene Hackman. Uh, very um. unknown. Yeah, this is his breakout. Breakout role after Unforgiven. And then he, he did one of, one of my favorite movies from the 90s, straight up, uh, A Simple Plan. Yeah. Starring Bill Paxton. Very, very good suspense thriller. Uh, then he did the aforementioned For Love. We talked a lot about For Love of the Game already. But uh, yeah, he, was in, he did that starring Kevin Costner. And he did a movie that was kind of a return to horror in its own way. Uh, the Gift starring Kate Blanchett. Did a lot of TV. He did a show called Mantis. Anybody remembers that? It was kind of in the I, vein of Darkman. 
I watched I watched Mantis. I definitely watched the hell out of Mantis when it was on. A black superhero too, yeah, which was, and it was very time, cool. Yeah, all, all at the time. What was and it? I believe was, he was disabled as well. He was. He was. Yeah, it was Carl Emley, right? Carl Emley. Yep. Yeah. And obviously, he did Hercules, Xena. He was becoming a big, big shot TV syndication producer. If people out there are younger asking, what's syndication? We don't have the time. Look it up. <laughs> That's a whole other, <laughs> whole other podcast. Because people nowadays probably have no idea what that even means. And I understandably so. But he also did a quaint film trilogy that wasn't the Evil Dead trilogy. Another little trilogy that definitely had zero impact on where we are today in pop culture. And dare I say, a society. Mike Rothman, if you could talk a little bit about the impact of Spider-Man and... Even more importantly, the the impact of Spider Man and what that had on Sam Raimi. Oh yeah, in the two thousands. Uh, well, to quote the Mustafa Kad, Spider Man, I love this guy. As I hold uh, the exact two thousand two uh, Spider Man um, with the uh, magnets and everything. Yeah, that's that I have what, that's in my what thing. they actually use because they have the special effects. They use just little toys and have them you slinging know, around the city. I, I wish they did because uh, let's just say the two thousand two si- uh, special effects uh, with the CGI don't hold up always, especially when mm. when little little Petey walks up the stair or the the wall in the first one. Agreed. Yeah, I mean it, to say, I mean it's been you know hammered to death over the last two months, especially with this multiverse of madness has come out, but. That first Spider-Man 2002 is is colossal. It's colossal. It's the Jurassic Park for many generations, especially of that time. It was just un- you couldn't avoid it. And you know, to follow it up with Spider-Man 2, which at the time people considered the greatest comic book movie of all time, and some people still do. I mean, mm. they had fucking Michael Shabon do some of the rewrites for the script for that. That's how you know. That's how prestigious it was at the time. There was a lot of ramp up. I mean, it was like he, I mean, he changed the game in a way that Daniel or Danny Elfman, Tim Burton did with 89's Batman. And, you know, what started obviously with, you know, the Blade and X-Men. We talk a lot about this in the Darkman commentary, which you can find patreon.com slash Halloweenies pod. Spider-Man took it to another level and opened the doors, I guess, in hindsight, in a bad way <laughs> for Hollywood. It was like, wow, we could make this nonstop and we could constantly get 400, 500, 600, now $1.5 billion movies. But what this does to Raimi is that I think it starts putting him in that mode where he's, I think he's a little more particular about what he's going to do, you know, outside of the Spider-Man movies. Because, you know, he at this point... Raimi's at the top of his, this is, you know, this is the top of his career. You know, he's making the, the most lucrative movies of all time. It changes things a little bit, you know, and especially in 2007 when he goes and releases Spider-Man 3, which had a lot of studio tinkering, you know, there wasn't really supposed to be Venom in there. The studio insisted upon having Venom in there. He was already having to finish, you know, the storyline involving, you know, Harry, Osborne, which was James Franco, uh, the now canceled James Franco, unfortunately. But uh, uh, and then, then you also have Sandman. So it, it's kind of a mess, and he's kind of in a situation that the franchise that also started around the time X Men was in at the time too, a year before, where the third one it kind of falls falls apart, and the critics tear it apart, and so he's at a little bit of a crossroads. Now, the thing with that people forget about this time is that Raimi never really left horror. You know, the same year he directed Spider-Man, he actually created Ghost House Pictures mm-hmm. with uh, Robert Taper, uh, Joe Drake, and Nathan Kahane. And here's the run of movies they put out ahead of Drag Me to Hell and while Raimi was in Spider-Land. 
And this is important before we get into what happens after Spider-Man 3. Well, let's go, when you say it, let's not digress too much, everybody. Let's, I think before we do digress too much, let's just say yes or no in terms of if these movies were any good to us. Okay, us. yeah, yeah. Yay so, or nay. Yeah, or exactly. never saw. Okay. okay, here we go. So 2004 is The Grudge. Never saw it. The nay uh, for me. I don't like uh, it. Nay. Original's really good. Uh, Mac. That was all right. That was all right. You like Pullman, though. I know you like Bill Pullman. I, I that's Taron Hollywood. Love this. Two minutes in that movie are great. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 2005's Boogeyman. Nay. Never saw it. Never saw it. Never saw it. Um. Uh, 2006, The Grudge 2. Never saw it. Never saw it. Never saw it. Might have seen it. Forgot it. Oh. All right. 2007's The Messengers. Nay. Never saw it. Never saw it. Never saw it. Uh, 2007's Rise Bloodhunters. Never what? heard of it. <laughs> All right. Uh, never heard of it. <laughs> excellent. No. <laughs> I've never heard of it. Either. Okay. 2007's 30 Days a Night. Absolutely yes. Oh, you me. know, I've never seen it. Oh, really? Oh, man. No. It's, it's, oh, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's a fun. That's a fun one. Yeah. I, I, I enjoyed it. Did Danny Houston and Josh Hartnett in that? Yep. 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 My boy and Josh Carl Umbley's, Carl Umbley's co-star in Alias. Oh, yes. Mosa George. Mm. She's, Mosa George, uh, yeah. yeah, she got bit pretty much uh, corrected by, I guess, Rachel McAdams. 2008's Boogeyman 2. Nay, I've, or I've never seen it. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Never <laughs> never saw, like I saw I'm that just one, assuming no one it. saw that. You know, never seen them, but highly recommend the Boogeyman from 1980, the Mel movie. But not and, the sequel to that movie. Well, because the sequel to that movie does the Silent Night, Dead and Night 2 thing where 75% of the movie is flashbacks to the Boogeyman. Is it really? Well, wow. Yes. Oh, my God. Anyway. Well, what about 2009's The Grudge 3? I was out on two, so I didn't see three. Mm, maybe my favorite movie of that year. Oh, wow. Uh, is this where the ghost plays baseball? I don't no, that's, remember. You're thinking about It, the book It. <laughs> okay. That does happen well, in the book. Victor Chris, it, does he play the baseball field? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, all right, so anyway, the only ones that actually Raimi really did produce were The Grudge, Boogeyman, The Grudge 2, The Messengers, 30 Days a Night, and then the executive produced The Rise Bloodhunters, which we, you know. Well, I will none, say with the exception of, of whatever this Rise Bloodhunters movie is, Mike, but those were heavily marketed. They were movies. They weren't just yeah. like dumped out. I mean, they were no. big deals at the time in terms of trying to get that box office boom. You know, God. no, Ghostos was legit. I mean, but here's the thing. So, like 2007, I, I'd, I'd say Raimi's kind of broken at this point. You know, um, I think he was not only just exhausted by the production of Spider-Man Three, but I think obviously the reception of it. It was such a 180 from what happened after Spider-Man 2. I mean, you think of the ending, the literal ending of Spider-Man 2. Peter gets, you know, gets what he wants. He knows who he, you know, he, he, he without spoil. I mean, I'll spoil it. It's fucking, spoil it's it. an old movie. Spider-Man 2. He gets know, with Mary Jane. He we're admits not talking it. about the Boogeyman 2, you know? You know, he, 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 he's proven his point and he gets his whole life. And then he, uh, you know, obviously there's the, what lies ahead. It's kind of exactly what happens to Raimi in, in, in terms of his own career. Cause like Spider-Man 3 opens up all these fucking problems for him. And, you know, it really stuck with him. I mean, even as recently as, as uh, last month, he talked about it on the, the press tour for Multiverse of Madness when he was talking to Rolling Stone. He said, 
it was a really painful experience for me. I wanted to make a Spider-Man movie to redeem myself for that. Uh, the aborted Spider-Man four, that was really was what that movie was going to be about. I wanted to go out on a high note. I didn't want to just make another one that pretty much worked. I had a really high standard in my end and I didn't think I could get the script to that level I was hoping for by that day. And he's talking about Spider-Man four because he mm-hmm. really was chasing to try to, to correct his, the woes that were happening in, in Spider-Man three. Um, all of which, by the way, didn't seem like they were really his fault. Like, it seems like it really was a lot of studio tinkering and being like, we need to have this other thread in here. We need to have this other thread in there. Um, so anyway. I remember there was some very unusual leaks going on for that time mm-hmm. um, regarding the production of that movie. And yeah. I always wondered if somebody on his team was leaking stuff out like, look, we did not want to have Venom in this no. movie. No. I really wonder if that was on his end, but well, my not thing to with, speculate too much. Like, I mean, not to go too much on a tangent with three. Like, I think they actually, I think three gets a worse rap than it really needs to. I think like the emotionalism of like what happens with Peter and Mary Jane is pretty strong. I think a lot of it is now pretty much slammed because of it's been memed to death with like the evil Parker dancing I and like, shit like yeah, that. I liked but, three when it came but out. I, it I actually don't mind it. I think they handled, I think the Venom stuff is pretty good. I think the Sandman stuff is, is redundant. And I think what the problem also is that they, the the costume design department for Harry is just so boring. Like, there's nothing there. And then what really hurts it is the inclusion of Gwen Stacy. Like, you just don't need that. But anyway, I digress. The thing that's really interesting to look at here, and this is kind of what happens to post-Drag Me to Hell, what really comes to define Raimi is that... I don't know if all you guys used to follow like Hollywood news like on a weekly basis. Even before I got into media, I was like Absolutely. refreshing news all the time. Yes. So you probably remember this. So around 2006, 2007, 2008, Raimi starts kind of finding him in a flow that he's going to be in for the next 15 years where he just starts attaching himself to projects and then he kind of just lets it fizzle away. So here are all the projects that he was attached to around the time leading up to Drag Me to Hell. The We Free Men based on the book of the same name by Terry Pratchett. Oh, wow. Terry Pratchett eventually took the rights back in 2009. He was attached to The Hobbit, but then that went, that went to Del Toro, and then tragically went to Peter Jackson. He was attached to a new Jack Ryan movie, which then also tragically went to Kenneth Branagh, and that movie is one of the worst films I've ever seen. I concur. He was going to do an, an adaptation of Dennis Lehane's The Given Day, which I'd really actually like to see, considering how good A Simple Plan turned out. Yeah. I think that would have been smart for him to do that. He was attached to uh, Ruse, a comic book adaptation he had been working on with uh, Sayavesh Farahani for Disney. That never ha- ha- you know, came through. But then of interest to us is that Raimi had also been teasing Evil Dead 4. And in 2007, he was telling the press that he was writing the script with Ivan Raimi. He then kept that thread going a year later, saying that Ivan was still writing the script, to which he then confirmed in 2009 that the script for Evil Dead 4 had been completed. So I'd, I'd actually really like to read that. So when you think about it, it's kind of a miracle that we got Drag Me to Hell because, I, I don't know, it's, it's weird. It's, like, it's just like looking at that and looking at just where his mind was at and all the other projects he was attached to, it does feel like a left field thing, like, or, you know, like, like a left hook punch like, that we get. We're like, whoa, how did the hell did this come to fruition? And then you think about what happens after Drag Me to Hell and you're like, uh, how did that happen even more? So it, it's just, a, it's, it's, it's interesting that we were talking about this movie because I think, there's a, I think it really is like a, a crossroads sort of interesting movie to look at when you're talking about Sam Raimi because there's a lot of what ifs that are, I think are tied to this movie. So uh. Yeah, I mean, and on that, I do have some quotes actually about how this movie came about at all. Yeah. Um, he gave an interview to cinema.com around the time of Drag Me to Hell's release. And he said that his brother, Ivan, who also worked on Army of Darkness with him, 
that they had written this short story in 1989 for Sick Around the Time of Darkman production um, that would become Drag Me to Hell. I think it was called The Curse at the time. Yes, it was. The 80s. Yeah. Uh, and then Ramey says, just a few years ago, we adapted into a screenplay. I have a horror movie company called Ghost House Pictures, oh, as I mentioned, Mike. Let me talk real quickly about something on Ghost House. I don't know where else we're mm-hmm. going to slide it in here. So Drag Me to Hell is one of two films that use the second Ghost House logos, pictures logo. Oh, with the skeleton, the, the skull. Can you name the other one? God. You know, I used to get this confused with the castle, but that's that's the Robert Zemeckis one, right? Yeah, that's the yeah. Dark Castle yeah. Productions. Uh, it ties into something else we're doing this month. Oh, Poltergeist. It was the Poltergeist remake. Oh, wow. There you go. And oh, be- yeah. And because this stuff always cracks me up, I wanted to talk about the Ghost House Pictures logo in the Nightmares logo canon, and I want to talk about how it's rated as its scare factor. And this one's rated as a nightmare. It may be, as they say on the website, it may be scarier than before because of the high-res skull shown fully. The way the skull appears out of nowhere and rapidly zooms in, much like Viacom's Via Doom. Do you guys know the Viacom Via Doom? Vaguely. It was on a lot of syndicate. It was on a lot of syndicated sitcoms. There you go. And it can catch unsuspecting people off guard. Oh, wait, is that they, the one that goes Viacom? Yes. Yes, okay, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. They say it's definitely one of the scariest logos ever. I, Unquestionably. Mm. I mean, I lost my train of thought, totally, just hearing yeah. about it, being honest with you. <laughs> yeah, that, that classic, not, not since TriStar Pictures has been such a classic logo integrated into society. But what Ramey said that they, they took that script, The Curse, and they decided let's take the full-fledged screenplay, and bring it to Ghost House for somebody else to do. But unfortunately, Ramey realized that that would mean having to, to really cut down the script to be made on a smaller budget. But because of the success of the Spider-Man films and all the money he had made, he, was re- he realized that the only way to really make it the vision that he wanted to see would be if he actually went in and went ahead and directed it himself. And so that's why, that's how... Drag Me to Hell ended up coming about because he really felt like if he gave it to somebody else, it would have been slashed, would have been slashed to death budget wise, and he did not want that to happen to this particular story. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Something else that was interesting to me is when you look at some of the inspirations of some of Sam Raimi's, not necessarily favorite movies, but just other folklore, and in particular, a certain movie from the 1950s that definitely played a part in the storytelling of Drag Me to Hell. And, Vanderbilt, I think you've got some information on this movie. I think in the States was called Curse of the Demon, but is officially called Night of the Demon. Am I correct in that? Yes, and you're 100% right. So Night of the Demon. Didn't even have that written down. I just remember that from years ago. (laughs) Night of the Demon, a.k.a. Curse of the Demon. That was the 82-minute American cut of the British film. So the similarities are, similarities are definitely there between Drag Me to Hell and Night of the Demon. There's three days of torment, there's the passing of a cursed object, and the climax also occurs at a train station. The uh, uh, Demon was based on the M.R. James story, Casting the Runes, and the cursed object in both the short story and the, fil- or in both the, short story and the film, uh, Night of the Demon, was a parchment with runes written on it, which could perhaps play into the Curse of Thorn. Yeah, I was going to say, this uh, sounds very similar to Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. I'm not this is saying. I'm, not just say, I'm just saying. Uh, so thematically, the films play in the same sandbox. Uh, in Demon, so in uh, Demon, Dana Andrews, uh, his character is a skeptic intent on exposing Julian Carswell, played by Neil McGinnis, as a fraud. 
and Andrew's character eventually comes to terms with Carswell's powers being real, unlike Christine in Drag Me to Hell, who kind of accepts the supernatural shenanigans rather quickly, which is something I appreciate about, appreciate about Drag Me to Hell. Uh, the, de- the demon manifests itself after Andrews passes the parchment on to Carswell, uh, who, I mean, spoiler alert for a over 50-year-old movie. I think we're good. Uh, it, w- it would appear, it looks like Carswell was running over by the train, but we know better. Uh, so when you were talking about, like, Raimi's domain, though, the production wanted to get Ray Harryhausen to create the demon mm. in Night of the Demon, but he was already uh. committed to the seventh voyage of Sinbad. It's a really cool looking demon. I don't know if are you guys familiar with this one. I am, but from yeah. what I remember, that was also very controversial at the time because the filmmakers did not originally want to even show the demon. Oh, here, here it goes. Uh, it, go. I think the demon's fucking awesome looking. It's terrifying. It's cool, big, hairy looking monster. You've probably seen it in a million. Yeah, oh, books I've seen on it, classic just, horror. Yeah. I'm talking to our listeners, Justin. Oh, well, I'm sure they've. <laughs> They're huge 1950s Night of the Demon fans, I'm sure. So the director, Jacques Turner, who did several low-budget horror pictures for RKO, including Cat People, I Walked mm-hmm. With a Zombie, and The Leopard Man, and screenwriter Charles Bennett never thought the demon should be shown, as he said, Justin. Bennett said of producer Hallie Chester, who even he also got credit as a screenwriter because he had his fingers all in this, uh, Bennett said of him, if he walked up my driveway right now, I'd shoot him dead. And this guy sounds like a younger Harvey Weinstein. I miss, Harvey Weinstein. I, I miss this kind of attitude in Hollywood. It's, this is the kind of interview. These are these these are the kind of press junkets I want to see, where somebody's threatening threatening to murder uh, somebody who, who who fucked up his film. Hey, passionate filmmaking. You can't beat that. Famously, I'm not sure if you know this, but you said that one of the stars of this film is Dana Andrews. And do you know what he once said? Uh, he said that prunes gave him the runes. And passing them, you use lots of skills. That's correct. For all you Rock Your Picture fans out there, that, of course, is from the song Science Fiction Double, Science Fiction Double Feature, sung by the great Richard O'Brien. O'Brien, that's right. Good movie. Yeah, good, co- cool movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dana Andrews is also in one of the greatest, uh, one of the first anti-war movies ever made, The Best Years of Our Lives. Excellent movie. You should check it out. Uh, we finally got best years of our lives mentioned on the pod. We did it. Well, we did days <laughs> of our lives for a good year. We've been so doing that why not? Plenty. You know? So we've gotten the best days. Now we're talking about the best years yeah, of our lives. Yeah. Oh, Ramey further discussed with cinema.com about why he wanted to get back into horror after spending years away from it. And this following quote made me think of Vanderbilt actually. And this is verbatim. He says, me? Yeah, this made me think of Vanderbilt. Cause he goes, freedom on this picture. He says picture like you do. He doesn't say movies or film. He says picture. I thought He's that was very boy. Vanderbiltian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he goes, I also like when old Hollywood guys refer to a movie as a show. Yeah, yeah a show. Like, is a uh, we, are working one, at, yeah. we are working on that show. That, that just cracks me up. I feel like Dana Andrews would have called uh, Curse of the Demon a show. Yeah. You know, that's, but neither here nor there. All right, so he says, on this picture, I could have complete control and final cut, which I actually have for the very first time since my first film. He's referring to Evil Dead, which would have been... Either uh, 27 years earlier, 28 years earlier, 29 years earlier, or 30 years earlier, depending That's on true. your yeah. release schedule for The Evil Dead. <laughs> he said, I could just do what I believed in. I didn't have to negotiate creatively with anyone. It was refreshing in that way. I also liked working under a smaller budget for a change. Although I had done that for 20 years, for the last seven or eight years, I've been working with the luxury of Spider-Man-type budgets, big studio productions. This was much more hands-on. No department has to deal with, just the actors, 
and the technicians, and it's much more rewarding, I think. I'm hoping to take what I've learned on this picture, which is an appreciation of brevity, how to be concise, and how to work on a little tighter schedule, a re-understanding of focusing on what's important, because when you don't have the big budget, you don't have a lot of time, you have no choice but to move forward. You have to decide what's essential on the spot. That was a refreshing thing to rediscover. Now, Mac, I know that you saw his follow-up film, Oz the Great and Powerful. Would you say that, unfortunately, that movie, he might not have had as much control that he maybe would have wanted to have like he did with Drag Me to Hell? I've not seen it, so I I leave it to you to uh, kick this off. I don't know if it was a control situation, and I don't know why after Spider-Man 3, he would jump right back into that scenario if he didn't feel that he was going to have the control that he wanted. Hmm. I just don't think it was a very good movie, unfortunately. Uh-huh. Parts of it work. I, I There's like a good movie in there somewhere, like if it leaned more this way or it did this or you excised that. But, you know, that doesn't bode well <laughs> looking back on it. But yeah, it, it's... Uh, it's just a bit of a mess. And, and, you know, that was like the height of everyone trying to do a prequel to something, some great mm. property. And that is not a good idea, folks. Just start making news stories, please. Well, no well, lessons the, were learned 10 years ago. Well, that's just so fucking weird about this. And that's why I did that whole rundown. Because he had a chance. You'd think like, after, like doing Drag Me to Hell, which, I mean... I'm not going to spoil our takes. We already talked about how we truly liked it, but like I, I consider this like a home run after Spider-Man three to do that, have some sort of like cleansing, if you will. And then like, I don't know, four years later, deliver lots of great and powerful. That's like someone like getting on and off the wagon again in a weird way. Like it just, it's just such a weird thing. Like I, I, I don't, I mean, it, it's a total fucking midlife crisis movie after he's already had sort of like the elixir for the midlife crisis in a weird way. Like I, I don't, I, I'm trying to think of like a comp for this, but it's so strange to me. Like, and it doesn't make any sense. It's like, I, yeah. I mean, maybe it was him trying to like read the tea leaves, Mac, like you were saying, like in trying to like lean in on a prequel territory, but it just seemed like bad idea genes all around. Like, Oh, let's mess with a leg, like a legacy property, do a story that's seemingly already kind of been told in a, fucking huge Broadway production like Wicked. I, I just don't get it. Like, it, it, it's still... I remember sitting there in theaters having to review it and just, like, five minutes in being like, why the fuck did he ever decide to do this movie? Like, it makes no sense to me. Like, and even now, tw- tw- what is it, 12 years later, or 10 years, not even 10 years later, eight years later, it still doesn't make sense to Raimi me. Raimi like, has a really interesting career in the sense that his stuff, either he's fucking the shit up or the studio's fucking the shit up, but he's always he still gets to direct these big fucking projects. I know Mac. Well, I was just gonna say, you know, two years after this, we get Astro Steel Dead. Maybe it was simply like a okay studio recognized that Drag Me to Hell was good, so maybe it was just Spider Man Three, which just was bad luck, whatever. Let's give him Oz the Great and Powerful because that that was a big movie when it came out. I feel well, like there's a, a lot of people. That in between that though is the fact that Spider-Man Four was ready yeah, to go after exactly. Drag Me to Hell, and that obviously went straight to hell. It did because he couldn't reach a certain date. I'm sure he was frustrated again right. with the studio, and then maybe he was just he wanted to do something big, and he realized, oh my god, it, it's been it, it will have been four years since my last movie. <laughs> 
you got to stay relevant in Hollywood. Justin, correct and, me if I'm wrong. Was there oh, a yeah. poster released for Spider-Man Four too? No, I don't think so. I think maybe in the trades, but I never saw anything official. It had it had it was like literally about to go into production. I had friends that were working on it, and yep. they they were ready to go. It was it was you know they had artwork set up, they had locations. Set, I mean, it was all done, like ready to go, and like wasn't they just John couldn't Malkovich, do. It. John Malkovich yes. is going to be the Vulture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and wasn't Anne Hathaway going to be Black Cat? Black or Cat. Something? Yeah. Ironically enough. Oh, there was a poster, it looks like. It was just a four against a, skitty, a cityscape. That might have been a mm. fan poster. I Is just that, don't know if anyone really... I, I don't know if it got that far yet. Because, again, like it had been, at that point, already four years removed. Uh, or no, not four years removed. About three years removed. Because it was supposed to come out in like May 2011. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the big date. And then they were pushing for that date. And he was bucking against that date, saying he needed more time. And I think, I think this kind of speaks to his mindset of just being so rattled and terrified of disappointment again after three, which is why I don't understand why he would do Oz the Great and Powerful. Like, I just don't, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, that, that just seems so set up for failure at that point. Like, it, it, there's, no, there's no, like, oh, on paper, this makes sense. Like, it doesn't, though. Like, how does it make sense? Like, you have an IP that's so celebrated that, like, I don't know. It just doesn't. But yeah. how about I think this? It's how like about the, this? It's like go ahead, Mac. You first. I just think it's like the George Miller Happy Feet thing. Like you do something like Oz Great and Powerful for the money. You know, I mean, because then after that, he was able to do Astro Civil Dead. Now, whether that was in the the works already or even planned on that, but I think sometimes you just do it for the cash, right? I mean. I- I, I, I don't know. It seems. It yeah. seems. I think it was a passion thing for him, though. I think he really did oh, like really? The, the us. I, I think so. I mean, I have to like really read in the details of it, but like, I don't know. You look back at like all the projects that he was attached to. He he literally was like hot potatoing everything, and then all of a sudden he lands on that. It's like almost kind of like how he landed on Dragged Me to Hell here. I, I just I don't know. Here's what's confusing to me: is that around this time you've had the Family of the Opera musical adaptation hit the, with Joel Schumacher movie. You've had the Les Miserables movie that hit screens, why didn't he just adapt Wicked? I know. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right? I don't, I don't get it. Uh, anyway, there's, maybe we'll never know. I, I really went to some research stuff about this, and I would love to have a good conversation with him about, oh, well, obviously a lot of things, but I would love to say, so exactly why was Oz the Great and Powerful your passion project in 2013 or whatever it was? Well, he was I just don't... He, it says on Wiki he was hired from a shortlist that included Sam Mendes and Adam Shankman. Robert Downey Jr. was attached to it originally. I remember and, that. And and Franco didn't even like get a, attached to it until five months before building or before scheduling to to film. And that's probably because of the Raimi connection from the Spider-Man movies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. How about going back in time, right? Yeah, I mean, we. I guess we also also acknowledge that like Drag Me to Hell like wasn't this like gangbusters blockbuster film. I mean, it was successful, but I mean, maybe this is around the same time where everyone has to assume that like movies need to make like a triple their fucking things to like, you know, seem back in returns. But it still was a success. I I, I don't get it. Like it's just I never don't understand. Sense if, to me. if we ever understood Hollywood, we would be in Hollywood. But I think that also mean that we'd have to either be born with a certain part of our soul missing. Or we have to at some point excise that part of our soul. To well, to be fair, industry. Justin, like if if you you know read the the, the tea leaves of Twitter, everyone mm. in Hollywood is supposed to be moral, morally superior, and um, they're it's all true. supposed to be perfect angels, and that's how it's supposed to be. So, rock and you know, roll, I, yeah, rock and roll. 
Some of my favorite people are perfect people. Uh, <laughs> if I, I don't know if I've yet to meet one, but let me know. We've talked a lot about Oz the Great and Powerful. We've talked a lot about For Love of the Game, but we do need to talk a little bit about 2009's Drag Me to Hell. So here's a story. The updated script, this movie, was ready to be produced before the big, quote-unquote, economic downturn, according to a Sam Raimi interview with the New York Times. Because when this movie came out, understandably so, there were a lot of comparisons being made with the themes of this movie, with somebody lending money and screwing over people's lives that had to do with the big housing crisis that was happening around this time. So I I was trying to figure out a really interesting way to talk about the housing crisis in the middle of the horror (laughs) podcast. But so what I did was what anybody would do, my mental faculties and the situation. I Googled housing crisis and added the word dummies. And lo and behold, it paid off. I found a really great summation courtesy of the website. And this is a great, talk about a great title for a website. Take it personally. Get it like oh, personnel, like, like your work, your force. Instead of personally, personnel. Yeah, that was good. We got it. Good bit. Good bit. <laughs> this reminds me of the pain in the ass business section when I used to work at Borders Books and Music, where there'd always be like <laughs> a bunch of weirdos. We're obviously unemployed, like back in the business section, like trying to like trying figure to out figure it out, figure out how to game the system or whatever. I don't know. I'm sure they did, but their, their article on the site is, is called "2008 Financial Crisis for Dummies: The Causes and the Consequences," which I will now, and I'll try to sound as intelligent as possible. But I do feel like we have to kind of break down what was going on at the time, and then kind of break down what's going on in this movie. Uh, so here's the quote here. The housing market was unstable. Everyone was able to get approved for credit back in the late 2000s, early 2000s, even if they couldn't afford it financially. From mortgage approvals to lines of credit, everyone bought things on credit. That means the real money flow dried up. More people bought on credit instead of actual funds. Thinking about Bitcoin, stuff like that. We'll see what happens with all that. Uh, That means the real money flow dried up as... More people bought on credit instead of actual funds, which I think I just said, but I repeated it. Inflation grew, and people started making conjectures about oil prices. There was also higher unemployment at the time, which drives up inflation as well. When financial institutions give credit, it's based on capital, usually your home. Now, most people listening to this because of the, the economy that we live in now have no idea what the fuck that would even mean to own a home. But yet... Uh, homes began to lose value around that time. So if your home isn't worth as much or you're foreclosed and no longer have your home, the creditors have no way to collect the money that you owe. Similar receptions in the 80s with property prices crashing and the 90s with the worldwide currency crises uh, showed the world what a recession of these proportions could look like. Yet it still came as a big shock to many when it finally hit in 2008, affecting the world much faster than even the Great Depression did. So even though people didn't call it a depression, it was... They call it a recession, or it was a depression, folks. That's my Justin, Justin Gerber economic uh, hat coming. That was on good. There. That was uh, good. But no, but one of the reasons that they cite uh, a huge drop in the cost of homes, and and that means everyone's real estate investments, even if it's only one house, was significantly less instead of appreciating as it should. Corporate losses also hit us hard, as companies even struggled to recover, and employees felt the effects. If you experienced setbacks in your career back in two thousand eight, you may still be seeing the results. 
this is really depressing. Your salary might not yet have grown back to where it would have been without the great quote unquote recession. Over a lifetime, some estimates say it will cost about $70,000 for every American. So it was a major thing going on for some of you younger listeners back in the late 2000s, specifically uh, 2008. I've got some more stuff here about some of the comps <laughs> that people found in this movie, which are pretty apparent in, in some ways. In their, but like I said, in some ways they are coincidental because the script was good to go. And I think they went to production before the big crash happened. But this was still on the minds of a lot of people who, were, who had homes, who had families, and who were seeing the, like you mentioned earlier, Mike, you know, playing with the tea leaves and seeing what was going to be coming in the future. Maybe they had their own seer, like this movie does. Mm. But uh, any, uh, anybody have any fond memories of this era? I, I, I was back in school, so I was kind of still outside of really having to worry about this affecting my life directly. Obviously, like a decade later, it absolutely has, but there you go. Well, I had just moved to Chicago mm. a year prior or whatever, and, you know, was, I'd just gotten a solid job, so I don't know. I I kind of, I didn't own anything at the time, so it didn't really phase me as much as I thought it might. Everybody was talking about it. I worked mm. at a commercial real estate corporation, so it was like everybody was talking <laughs> about it, but... I didn't ever really see that effect or if it did affect my rent or anything like that, I, I had no clue because it was the first time I started renting anything. So to me, mm-hmm. it just seemed like that's what you normally pay. This is the normal situation. This is the normal way of things. But that was just me when I, you know, when I don't remember it really affecting me. Well, this, this really affected the people out there who were just trying to live the quote unquote American dream, whatever that is, right. of, you know, getting a house, having a house. Like you figure everybody should be have the opportunity to have and not be fucked over by it, which ended up happening here. Vanderbilt, what about you living down there on the south side in the late two thousands? What was going on? I remember I was the day that they were giving out the bailouts. I, I had no idea what was going on. I was completely like ignorant to the whole situation. But I was tending bar at Chili's, and this guy came in to and asked me to put on CNN and just sat there and watched it intently to see quote unquote what they're doing with our money. And I still mm. can't believe Obama would just bail out all the banks like that. I, I know it's yep. uh, well, yeah. Thanks, Obama. We, we can't. We we cannot go here because this is gonna get, <laughs> this is going to get ugly. And I will say this is one of the cardinal sins of the American government is the fact that. Well, you guys they, know what the joke there is though. It wasn't him. No, it, no wasn't. it wasn't because it was he was still running for president yeah, at the time. But, yes. <laughs> but people kept blaming him for it specifically. Yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I know, felt like I needed yeah. to, I don't like to explain my jokes, no, but I, I felt know, like, I, 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 needed, like I needed to do that one. one of these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. no, I got the joke. I got the joke. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a little it's 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 very it, you know, it's uh, Alec Baldwin and Meryl Streep. It's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I specifically remember do you remember that Obama and McCain suspended their campaigns briefly when this was going on? I remember that was happening too, but this is more of a Bush era. Anyway, go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Well, no, I mean, it's just, it's definitely a, it, it's a complex situation that uh, there are a lot of fingers to point. Ultimately, the thing to, to just kind of, as you do with everything in this fucking country, you just have to sigh and go, well, that was a, that's that a shame. sucked. <laughs> that's a shame. Yeah. yeah that's a shame. Yeah. That's- so, um, yeah, great times. It was fun, but you, you know, big short, what a fun movie though. Hey, um, to be fair, good movie. <laughs> Yeah, good that, movie. That's actually good. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but here's, I thought this take, because you look at the movie, we're, we'll talk about, obviously, with the, 
the curse and what's going on with Miss Ganoush and, and why she's in a situation. We could talk about the loans and being screwed over. But Slate.com had an, another interesting take on how Alison Lohman's Christine character figures into several uh, housing crisis illusions in this movie uh, in ways I wasn't really thinking about before. And Slate says, you know, this much has been observed for its recession era significance and succumbing to base careerism. Christine jeopardizes her soul which I think we can all pick up on watching the movie. It's pretty apparent. But, Slate says, we can push this further. What we haven't discussed is how Mrs. Ganesh's curse has the effect of throwing Christine at the mercy of a shadowy, unknowable, bizarro economy. Mediums and spiritual advisors, quote-unquote specialists, who may in fact be con artists, weaving an elaborate, greedy fiction demand, various outlandish sums from Christine, both monetary... $10,000 $10,000 for the seance, the seance and feline. Mm. <laughs> These prices are free floating untethered to any product or service bearing a concrete determinable value. What better punishment really for representative of the mortgage system, that shadowy, unknowable, bizarre economy full of specialists who weaves an elaborate, greedy and untethered fiction for the ages of which it should be pointed out Mrs. Ganesh was a victim. In this reading, Drag Me to Hell operates as a wild, spooky riff on, post, on postmodern capital. Mm-hmm. Note how the plotline is built around a series of frustrated transactions. You've got the rejected payment extension, the palm reader's fee. And by the way, in that scene, Rom says he takes Clay's Amex and says, Platinum card, very good. Yeah, I picked up on that. <laughs> the kitten sacrifice, the medium's fee, the pawn shop. That she goes to to try to get ten thousand dollars desperately, the goat sacrifice even, and finally the cruel reversal, in which a rare coin is rendered profoundly worthless, and a cheap wooden button becomes priceless. What is the movie's penultimate scene? The one in which Christine digs up Mrs. Ganush's corpse and shoves an envelope into her mouth, if not a visit to one hellacious ATM. To make a deposit. I thought that was a great take. I didn't think about the, the flip of that and um, yeah. and the many ways the corruption of of where the economy was and what the economy really is has on normal American people and the end and what will drive them to do as you see what it drives Christine to do to try to to make it. You kind of have to literally in this case sell your soul. <laughs> you know what I mean? To have it happen. I thought that was pretty great. Slate.com. Good job by you. I like that. It's a great take. It's great a great take. take. Yeah. It, 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 and it's one of the reasons why I really do love this movie is that, mm. you know, especially in an era where metaphor horror tends to be incredibly blunt. <laughs> yeah. I think you could make the argument that this is somewhat blunt, but I think it's so subtle. And, and because it's, it's so, it, the, the spiritualism is so ostentatious and so at the forefront that any of the thematic value of which you just outlined really is so embedded in it. And I think that that's my favorite type of message horror, if you will. And I don't know, it's smart. I just wish that more people can pull it off. <laughs> like we, we bemoan a lot of these horror movies that they have all these incredible you know, allegories, but they forget yeah. to steal from Vanderbilt. They don't understand the assignment and they forget no. oh. that it should be a horror movie. This movie never forgets it's a horror movie. No, they're demons. There are right. demons. You know I mean? There is hell. This yeah. isn't like, oh, she got pulled into hell, but really it's just her financial woes. Like, no, she's <laughs> fucking going to <laughs> hell. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I was just going to say that. I like that you said that it's perfectly embedded in the movie. It's there if you want to see it, recognize it, and understand yeah. that there is a, it's trying to say something else as well. 
that's not the point of the movie. And, and, and yes, it, she, it's dragged down there. It is not like the Babadook where you're like, Oh, well actually this is what's going on. Like, no, <laughs> she goes to hell. Literally dragged to hell. I picture those, those silly memes where people take a movie and they somehow incorporate the title into it. And I just picture like somebody saying to the demon in drag me to hell. So, they could say you're the financial crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Very good. Vanderbilt, speaking of financials, if you could tell us a little bit about the, uh, you know, the marketing of this movie and the distribution uh, for Drag Me to Hell. If you've I mean, got some notations on this. Just a little bit, but one of my favorite things about this movie, and I know Rothman's going to really appreciate this, was the use of the Universal Pictures 80s logo. Yes. That was yeah, great. Love it. I made note of that. And they distributed the film stateside, but even better is if you stick around for the end credits, they still use the "When in Hollywood Visit Universal Studios" tag at the oh, end. I didn't. I didn't stick around. That's but interesting. They don't have the "Ask for Babs" bit from Animal House. You guys know about that, right? Yes, but that hasn't been. That wasn't used for a long time after after that. That would been that would been pretty specific, right? Because how long was the "Ask for Babs" used in the in the I think it was. I, I don't know how many uh, movies it was actually using. That's a good question. I should have figured a, that a, out. We'll look it up later on. Yeah. There you go. And that's about it. Like, and then the Ghost House uh, logo. And I, although I, I got to say, I'm kind of disappointed that I enjoy. If, if I was to put them up against each other, I enjoy more Bloomhouse movies than I do Ghost House movies. Which, yeah, as a true. big Raimi fan, like, I mean, they really cranked out a lot of dreck. They did, and they still kind of are. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I mean, honestly, this and um, yeah, Dark Castle, both not big fans of either of those horror companies, and they kind of dominated, at least marketing wise. Like they were the ones that were being promoted on MTV. Well, I mean, it's it's just it's just funny because you know I was talking earlier about how oh I, when we were talking about the New Evil Dead and how like oh at the time I probably would have welcomed like a more horror comedy thing, which is probably why Drag Me to Hell was such a relief. And the irony being that I probably walked out of Drag Me to Hell not knowing all of this background and thinking like, man, it's so good that it, this is just, like such a relief from like the the crap like the Grudge or <laughs> well, the, the Messengers or Boogeyman, well, and yet those are all this. from the same family. Yeah. Like, look at this; they do the Grudge. It. They when did they release the Grudge? They released the 2004. Grudge two thousand four, two thousand four, and what yeah. are, what's one of their last releases? Another remake of the Grudge. Yeah. That's right. Just hanging their hat on the Grudge. Yeah, yeah. But every once in a while, you get like Crawl. You know? Oh yeah. I mean, Crawl's was that, was that Ghost House? Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, Crawl's yeah. great. Love Crawl. Yeah. One of my one of my oh. top ten favorite uh, Gators Boydation pictures. When when the when the sh- when they're sub, lean sub, sub, and mean, sub, they're sub. fucking great. Like that's the thing that's awesome about it. Well, this is a mean movie. Oh, fucking we're totally mean. This I is a it. mean motion picture, and you know what's funny? I was thinking about the, about your brief run through because this around this time, this is such a Hollywood movie. There's nothing sexy or or no. interesting about this distribution. Like, remember what, what movie were we doing? Where was it? Prom night? Where the producer? No, like, you're thinking of House of Death or something. How, what was House on Sorority Row? Uh, the yes. guy from Film yeah. Ventures International, who I always neglect his name, and that's a name I should really remember because uh, I, I love that man. Still has never been found. But that's uh, another thing. Like, uh, it's, you know, some inside baseball that when people want us to do yeah. newer newer movies on the show, sometimes the research just isn't as much fun into the distribution 
and uh, releasing elements. But the good news on that usually is that the episodes don't end up being four hours long. So I guess it's, <laughs> there is like, there's always a plus depending, if, you, if you go searching for it. Depending on what you look for in your Halloweenies podcast. That's right. Also, I shouldn't have said that a lot of famous last words. This will not be a long <laughs> podcast. We've never learned our lesson over the last four or five years. So I will say, so on a total budget of $30 million, Drag Me to Hell made $42 million domestic, but it made $48 million internationally. Yeah, it doesn't so it made matter. made a decent amount. Yeah, that, and that's, that's probably why. That, well, here's that, the thing, though. You know. I mean, my God, if you, it made $90 million worldwide. And when you know, adjust it for inflation today, that would be about $121 million. And it would have finished in the top 40 last year for box office. That's how much things have changed. But at the time, it was not considered a big hit. I know. I mean, it made money, but it was not considered a hit. But also think about this, you know, with the recession, no one wants to go watch a movie where it's all about like repossession of houses and then having a, such a, a dour ending at that. Even if they, even mm. if they're just uh, able to let go and just have fun with it. I remember after seeing the movie, I was, I was like, not in the, I wasn't like, Oh, I got to watch this every Halloween. I got to watch it's a downer. And, it and is, yeah. I can have fun with it now. And kind of distance myself from all that and be like, oh, this is actually a really, it is really fun movie too. There's a lot of humor in it, yeah. but it, it was, it's pretty brutal. So I, and I, I kind of get why it didn't end up taking off at the time at which it came out, unfortunately. Well, it's just well, a weird yeah. time too. Like, it's not like now where you can go and release like, you know, the black phone in June, which is mm. wild to me still even now. Yeah. I, I still think if this was released in like late September, early October, especially in 2009, it does much better. I would agree. You know, especially that year. I think, I think like what, 09, that year Paranormal Activity comes out. I think you get to ride on a horror wave that starts, that restarts again. Because this is this comes out at a time in horror where I do think that things are just figuring, it, it's that weird transitional bridge where it kind of just gets kind of thrown into mm-hmm. the water. I love a yeah. horror movie in summer, though, because I mean, summer is just so too. so yeah. clogged up with like kind of blockbuster nonsense. Like, I think this was a nice respite that that summer. I think now yeah. because blockbusters are just released whenever. Yeah, that this maybe I'm not sure how much of an impact it would have had now if it's released right. in June as opposed to, or but if also, it was released in the fall as opposed to June. Just the the time in which the movie's taking place it is does feel like summer. They're going on vacation and stuff like that. So I, I kind of get it why they maybe put it out then too, but I'm always perplexed as to why they don't put horror movies out closer to, you know, the Halloween, the fall era. I I, I just feel like, the, wouldn't they always do better? I know they don't want to, a lot of it line, ends up, we don't want to line it up with other competition, you know, with other mm-hmm. horror movies. So they try to stay away from <laughs> October as much as possible, I feel. But I don't know. Why it's, not put it in the time in which everybody wants to go see those movies? It's always weird to me. It's kind of the same situation that Army of Darkness fell itself into. And that, you know, again, though, a genre just didn't know where it was. And, like, I really do think it's important to look at that in every time we talk about these movies. Because, especially when you're talking about why it didn't work. Because if you think about it, by 09, May 09, I think we're still coming off the tail end of like all the remakes, you know, like Friday 13th, 2009 was that February. I think we get my bloody Valentine. I think that same year as well. I think the year before that you're still like 2008, 2007, you're still getting a lot of like the, 
I, I don't. I don't know. I just don't. I, I think there's a lot of. Well, a couple uh, years before that, The Grudge. Ghost yeah, Fast exactly. Grudge, you know, American remake. Yeah. The so Rain I don't movies. I do think that this. I don't know. I, I do wonder, like, if this was released after Paranormal Activity, when you do start getting like the found footage, horror, ghosts, supernatural stuff, would have fared better. I don't know. I still think it's an outlier in that respect, but I think it probably would have done at least. A, I think it would have been noticed more. You know, yeah, it's just frustrating. Well, I mean, much like why didn't Sam Raimi adapt Wicked instead of this Oz for the Great Powerful? We'll never know. Well, I like, think know. about it's just a weird year too. Like you mentioned the Star Trek movie. Like, think about the movies that were coming out in 09 that summer, that year. You had, like, X-Men Origins, Wolverine. Or, poor film. The Star, the Star Trek. I'm, I'm not even just talking about horror. I'm just talking about, it's just in general. Just these, it's a very strange no, year I for said blockbusters. poor film. Oh, poor film. Okay, yeah. okay. Then you have Terminator, Terminator Salvation. You Ugh. have the, the, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Oh, what? my God. Like, not, not great. Like, Night at the Museum, Battle of the Smithsonian, Up... And then here's the thing that really does just absolutely bury Drag Me to Hell. Do you know what movie it is? Truth, give me a hint. He's one of your least favorite directors, probably. Oh, my least favorite director? Yeah, Ooh, you boy. might say he's a joker. Oh, Todd Phillips? Mm-hmm. The fucking Hangover? Yeah. I thought The Hangover was pretty good. No, I like The Hangover, but I'm saying that movie absolutely buries this. It comes out the next week. And there's no fucking mm. way, and yeah, no talking one's talking about, about it. They were all talking about the Hangover. That's right. The Hangover was so huge, like it was. It was, it was this ubiquitous moment, and that defined the summer. And it's like what, it, you're going to go see the Hangover, a movie where you, a bunch of people are having fun and you know solving these things. You can check or, out, yeah, yeah exactly. You don't or, have to like think about anything that's happening right now, that's which what you're talking this about. movie only tells, reminds you of, you know, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. after oh, that, well. it's it, it is rough. After that, I'm telling you, in the next few weeks, like Public Enemies, is that there? There's just one of Michael Mann's like least favorable movies. Transformers: Oof. Revenge of the Fallen. Like Oof. it's a, it's a bad fucking summer for movies. Well, the movies are back. Yeah. You know, that's the good thing about now. Everything's fine. But I, let, let me ask you, let me ask you guys this question. As I said, Drag Me to Hell would have been top forty last year. But does anybody know what place it was in for worldwide box office back in 2009? Don't look. I'll give you a hint. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Dead in Unison. 69? 69, dudes. Okay, oh, wow. 69th place at the box That's rough. office in 2009. That's, rough. That's not great. <laughs> no, no. You know, a couple things here. I don't really know where we would find place for these, so I, I just want to run through real quick here. I thought the staple popping off of uh, Ganesha's eye <laughs> was extremely Evil Dead. There was a great use of silhouette and shadows throughout the entire movie. That's a good example of, well, how do you make a PG-13 horror movie? Well, just suggestion. You know, shadows and silhouettes are not too grotesque and gory. You can do that kind of thing. I thought it was extremely funny when Christine approaches the cat and then they cut to the outside of the house and then the cat yelps and you discover, oh, no, she actually did kill the cat. (laughs) This isn't some cute thing where it's like, oh, the cat's fine after all. She kills the cat. <laughs> this adorable little kitten. <laughs> That's the real I turning mean, point of the film. Oh my god! Totally. That's, 100% I remember at the time I, I couldn't believe it, even 13 years ago. And when the goat is possessed and says, "You tricked me, you black-hearted whore," uh, incredibly funny. Incredibly funny. That's all. <laughs> Just yeah. I, there's so much, so much of this movie. I think should not work, and it 
does. And I think it, I think if anyone else is directing this movie, it doesn't work. That's what I, I just think earlier, Sam Raimi right? knows how to the... walk that line just well, just right, you know, and, and cause that whole sequence at the end where it just goes off, the, it's just off the wall at that point, but it, it's all still very fun and, but also can be scary the next moment. I, I don't know. I, I, it just, yeah. Walks that line really well. Well, speaking of walk the line, which is a Johnny Cash song. We should talk about the music of Drag Me to Hell. And let's, let's stay with Matt Gerber when we go into our next category. Uh, why does she keep making those horrible noises? I don't want to die. You're not going to leave me here, are you? Are you ass? <laughs> so, Mac, I know you did a little digging regarding the score for Drag Me to Hell. Let's, let's hear about it. The score is done by... First time scorer Christopher Young. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, he's done so much. So we all know Christopher Young, uh, one of my faves. He's done. He did Nightmare on Elm Street 2 at the time, Invaders from Mars, Trick or Treat, Hellraiser. Uh, and then more recently, uh, a great score. I did not, had no clue it was his. Sinister. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> he worked with Raimi on The Gift and Spider-Man 3. So he was already in Raimi's, you know, in his house. Came in, Raimi wanted a supernatural score, and what's really funny, and I and I feel like so schmoozy saying this, but the score really feels like another character in this movie. It feels like Lamia. Like anytime mm-hmm. the score comes in, it's the curse has arrived again. The curse is rearing its ugly head, you know? And it works so well. Sometimes I'm not I'm I'm a I'm more, you know, less is more person. Let I don't want the score underlying everything in the, but it does such a good job keep keeping the suspense and le, and setting the tone of each scene. It's done so well. There's also some moments that really reminded me of of Evil Dead, and I think maybe I'm just had that in back totally. in my head. But there's a oh. moment where like the bass like starts thrumming, like there's a bass thrum, like do 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 do, and it reminds me of that Moog sound when like Ash is running through the cabin, he slams the door shut, stuff like that. There's just there's really fun use of music here, and what's also interesting, you know, the strange thing I found was that he used elements <laughs> from one of his other scores from the 1987 The Flowers in the Attic. Ah, I don't really? know if you all have seen that. I but have. That is and unnerving. I, I think I recognize some like it's like almost like a lullaby. That that movie's got a pretty good score to it. The movie's an yeah. absolute disaster zone, but that, <laughs> yeah. he's he's made a lot of good scores over the years. I mean, most famously, if you remember, we talked about this in our Elm Street episode, but Elm Street Two does not have any music at all from Elm Street. It's Mm-mm. its own right. mm-hmm. isolated score. It's very. It, I think we talked about that. What was it? I think Friday Thirteenth Part Five: A New Beginning also has the same scenario right where every piece of music in that movie was never in an earlier friday 13th movie i think that's one of the only instances that, that ever happened in any of those franchises but and it's a great and that christopher young score is absolutely great in that and hellraiser i mean he's he's kind of underrated i think at this point he is underrated like horror oh, lore, totally right? yeah Most we totally. i had a chance to speak to him for the yeah. losers club at uh when he was doing for the pet cemetery score and i think what also helps with with one of the reasons why he connects so well with some of the IPs is that he's a horror hound. 
like one of the things we connected on was just like he loves Halloween. Like his house is like filled with Halloween decorations. He talked about how he like scores with pumpkins sometimes, like lit, lit up pumpkins and everything to get in the mood. Like this guy absolutely adores the genre and it comes across in his scores, you know? Like, and he gets to places that are really unnerving and really dark. Like I, I mentioned, I said unnerving tied to the Flowers in the Attic score because, you know, that's a perfect example because like on the surface, like, yeah, it, it's it's more of a drama, but the, the score itself is more of a horror in a way. And like, I think he does that to such great effect, but also to such minimal effect. Like the thing I I think that's so awesome about the Nightmare 2 score, which we talked about in that episode, is this what he does with just the little things. Like, whereas Charles Bernstein's score for the first one is so elaborate and so atmospheric, which I love, I love that score. Nightmare 2 is so chilling because mm-hmm. it's just it just punctures you. And he does that in this movie to great effect. Like, you know, the, the jazz stuff like is really interesting. Like there's like this weird, like I think, yeah, I think it's tied to what you were saying, Mac, with just like the bass comes in. There's like these weird sort of yeah. like almost like free floating instrumentals that just kind of really itch your skin. And I, I don't know. It just adds so much to the scenes and look, you know, lesson to anyone making a horror movie. If you want to get a, if you want to scare your audience, get, just lean on the violin. The violin will always fucking work. The violin's the best instrument for horror. And he just, fucking wields it like crazy in this score and it's awesome it's great so well and there was something else i learned about this i'm not sure if any of you had notes on this but as we know the exorcist had a ah. different score originally uh, lalo Schifrin had a score for that movie i think if you watch the original exorcist trailer that incredibly disturbing uh, strobe light trailer stop that, stop talking that about used, it it's oh too much God, so i terrifying. can't do it but that <laughs> that uses some of his unused score and the Exorcist Symphony, have, right? I guess yes. it's called. But this movie does have an element from that unused score. And I could not, I was listening throughout the movie. I could not figure out what it was, but it was, I think it was called like rock theme. Uh, the un, unused music from The Exorcist. I, I could not find out what scene it was in. But it's I in heard it's somewhere. in the diner. That, well, that would be pretty funny because you wouldn't, you wouldn't be thinking about right. horror in the diner scene. So that would be a pretty funny inclusion. Maybe that's what it was. That makes sense. Mm. That's a fun little, little uh, nod. But yeah, anyway... If you haven't heard that score, I remember when the, when the 25th anniversary soundtrack came out, I believe it included a bunch of those selections that were not used in the movie. Please. So you should seek that out. Can we stop really talking about it? It's, it's creeping me yeah, out. I can't. That, that trailer is that, that, <laughs> enough. That teaser trailer I've, I've is I ever told you the story I, when I got the Exorcist on DVD back when I was 19. Yeah, we were the same age. We probably saw it at the same time. We got that special edition. And... Out. I sat down, watched it with my friends. I, I fell asleep during it. We had added on Friday night, I fell asleep. Everybody leaves my house about two in the morning. I'm living in my parents' basement. And I say, oh, cool, I'm up. I'm going to check out all the the special edition, all the oh. extra stuff, right? So I'm sitting in my basement, grown-ass man, and I put on that trailer. And I almost pissed myself. What like, is it? They say, like, something is happening in the upstairs uh, house to this little girl. And they, oh, my God. I turned out all, I flicked. Flicked out all the lights, like, was ready to call everybody. You guys need to come over. I can't think. Put, actually, I remember I put on Friday the 13th, part five, because it was like oh, a warm, weird. it was like a warm blanket at that point. <laughs> now, I had, I had, Justin must have had this on tape, right? Yeah, I think it was on tape. Because, yeah, and that trailer was on as the extras or something. And I brought it in. 
I brought it into school, and I think it was like fourth period choir. This is our <laughs> choir room. I remember this. I so shut we, I down the lights. Yeah. We shut down the lights, and we put it on in this big room with everybody there, and everybody was silent watching it. And, of course, it's that strobe, so it's just like lighting up the room every once in a while. I just remember watching, I remember that so vividly and it was so fun and it was so freaky. <laughs> so silly though, to be like showing Mike, up you know, my choir one, class. <laughs> one of the ads for this episode should just be on social media, us talking about the Exorcist on your theme and then have that playing in the background. That'll <laughs> oh, freak no, everybody don't, out. Come on. Stop. <laughs> anyway, right, we gotta listen, move on. I can't, I can't talk about on. it anymore. We gotta move on. There. Yeah, guess yeah. what? There's, there's really no songs in this movie, so we don't have to worry about breaking down like the Scream 3 soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just move merrily along. Well, Creed Creed was originally attached to produce uh, the <laughs> soundtrack. To this, this movie goes down the full star. Uh, wind up records. Uh, Not much left to say in this case, though, except for hey, hail to the king, or should I say, hail to the queen, baby? Sure, I could have stayed in the past. Could have even been king. But in my own way, I am king. Well, you know, normally, I mean, as we were wont to do for Evil Dead movies, we would be talking about Ash Williams, but there's another hero. Or should I say another villain, really, when you think about it. Uh, that's Christine Brown, played by Alison Lohman. And she is somebody who, when you're watching this movie, is really struggling and trying to conform, right? She's trying to change her accent, trying to maintain that a society-approved thinner frame. Uh, her boyfriend's parents don't think she's good enough. She is absolutely a desperate person, and that leads to obviously very harsh actions. So she is ultimately the one that's responsible for the harsh actions when you look back on the movie, too. You know, It is technically up to her at the end of the day. And I thought that there's some quotes here that Rami had to say about her that I love, and I wish that more people would think about today when they're talking about make-believe in fictional characters. <laughs> and in 2009's The New York Times, Rami said, This is a young woman who thinks she's a good person, but she acts out of greed. That seems relevant, the greed. I try to make her someone you identify with because at the moment she has to make her choice, and I want the audience to make that choice with her. They sin with her. They know they're culpable, and now they know they're going to be punished. Okay, and then as for her ultimate comeuppance at the end, when she obviously <laughs> gets dragged to hell, uh, Rami said, No, I feel that poor girl was overpunished, as it happens in life sometimes. <laughs> it's a morality tale. She did do the wrong thing, but holy cow, give her a break. But that's how this particular tale ends. I thought it would be shocking to title the film, drag me to hell, and actually end it with giving exactly what the title demanded and still making it incredibly shocking. I thought that was a really funny cocktail for me. I, I agree. I agree. I agree. I mean, it's this just, movie, it doesn't work with it without that ending. It really if, doesn't. If it's a happy hug me horror ending, hashtag Tell hug me. me horror, excuse me. Drag me to hell. And we're like, she like gives hug me the to button hell. to stew at the end. It's like, oh, actually, I did give the button to stew. Oh, come that. on. No, come on. Ivan I, I I actually had a good quote about the, the character that I think that every person that, um, you know, there are a lot of writers out there that like to tweet on horror about how you should write a horror script and whatnot. And this is probably a good one to, to kind of pin on one of those, those rules if, you, you know, if you're out there doing that incessantly on a week-to-week basis we made christine morally complex she's trying to get ahead in her job like anyone else she's just a normal person with all the attributes that we might have colored and grays instead of black and white colored and grays instead of black and white 
colored and grays instead of black and white. Colored and grays instead of black and white. Colored and grays instead of black and white. That's what makes her interesting to me. She put she's put in a situation where her punishment does not fit the crime, and it is exciting to watch how she has to deal with it. And you take that quote, tie it with Ramy, and then you put in the idea that that's logical because that's life. Life isn't supposed to be, as I mentioned before, celebrities aren't perfect. People aren't morally superior. People aren't morally perfect. And guess what? A fucking story where anyone is that is boring. And it's why we don't talk about those movies more often than not. So I want to piggyback on that because we can talk about fictional characters and characters who are, you know, less than virtuous. I don't know about you guys, but I like one thing I like about less than virtuous characters is that sometimes I see too much of myself in them. Mm. Like, do you see a little bit of yourself in characters like Christine or like, sure. yeah. like even Travis Absolutely. Bickle? Like you're like, you got like, not that you, you know, he's a bad dude, but you're like, you kind of like, you see your worst elements in some of these yeah. characters. And I don't think some people, some people don't want to admit that though, because no, they, they, never be- do. Well, they want the to problem. believe I- that they're truly virtuous and they can't see that side of themselves in, in characters. And, and like nobody this. is, and nobody is, and nobody is. Um, anyway, well, I want to say about Alison Lohman though. This is a terrific lead performance, I think, because even though she's doing these bad things, it's not like she's the quote unquote, you know, for lack of a better word, honestly, and this like the bitch of the movie, like the evil bitch who's going to get her come up. It's like you're still kind of rooting for her because you do see what she's going for and the struggles that she's going through and, and trying to fit in and, and trying to impress. But then the movie does kind of turn a little bit, you know, she kills the cat. She kind of starts to lose it a little bit more. She gets a little more vicious. But that's also well because who isn't that's a little, little bit that's product of, of society thing you could also add into that isn't right? a little bit selfish once in a while right and that's and they even say like but I don't even you, they, he even says to her I'm sorry I lost his name oh Ram he even says to her when she's like I would never kill an animal I'm a vegetarian I'm I mean you know I I work at food I work at food I work at uh, pet shelters and he goes you'd be very surprised what you will what you would do when you're faced with something like this and then ten minutes later she kills her cat I mean you know. But I think that's and that's the whole thing of the movie is that you you are rooting for her. She's not like a horrible person, I, even though she could have given the extension. Mm. But like, if you look at the way the world works, in the way that you know, and, and just any job really that <laughs> that I've ever had, there's things that you kind of have to put up with and do, and you don't you don't want to do it. But and if you want to get to that next level, unfortunately, you're battling with all these things. I buy it. I do think, though, that the moment she kills the cat, you're like, okay, there's a turn there. There's a turn out where you're not against her, but I'm also kind of just like, all right, how is she going to go to hell? Like, like it, it, cause you <laughs> just feel like, it does, because I think what happens is when you start making all of those exceptions to the rule, when you start going down that path to try to save yourself, but you're also hurting other people, there, there is no coming back from that. Like, you are gonna get taken. Well, like, and R- Rothman, this is what we're talking about, right? It's we're going back and forth about this because it's the gray of the character. It's yes. not the black and white of this character. Yeah. Well, the, well, yeah. there is a nihilistic take of this movie that I, I, I seemingly like to go on because I'm not to say I'm a nihilist or anything, but I'm very cynical and I don't have a lot of faith in a lot of things in the world, but ultimately this movie to me just screams all roads are paved to, the, to hell you know like mm, i mean that, yeah. that's what it is because you think of it this way like she doesn't do you know she's cursed she's going to hell so even if she does try to do 
any good deeds here. Even if she doesn't try to kill the cat or doesn't kill the cat or tries to make good on this curse and whatever, she's still going to hell. So right. it, it's, it doesn't matter. Like she's, it's, even if she does try to be a good person. So here's the thing also. If we're to believe that hell does exist in this world and that there is some sort of morality at hand, even if she does stave off being dragged to hell here, she, you know, probably will go to hell regardless of what her actions have put her through by passing the curse on to someone else. So inevitably she will yep. go to hell. So when you think of it that way, it does kind of play into the idea that like, you know, damned if you will, damned if you do, damned if you don't which is kind of how I feel about everything in life right now. <laughs> like I really do. Well, and I, and I think that's why I kind of like love this movie. Cause it's like, yeah, that's, a, you know, that's the, the, the cruel truth of the world. If you really think about it. <laughs> I mean, there's a moment near the end where she almost gives the button to that poor old man with the <laughs> oxygen. It's like, that's the guy you decided on. Like that's yeah. a desperation, you know, it's just, yeah. It's, He's already on his way out. Wild. Yeah. But I will say Alison Lohman's, she basically retired after this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I will say I was very disheartened to see some of her social media posts over the last couple of <laughs> <All> years. Right. <laughs> well, uh, you know what? Let's keep this a hey, positive let's podcast about, and let's hey. move right along. You know what? Yeah. Let's head off to the woods, man. Hey, no, I, I wanted think? to say, gotta say, Stone Cold Fox. They get her they got it. she wears some cute outfits in this. I'm into the strappy heels. Uh I like her. You know what? He's a doll. Like, let's keep it positive. I agree with you hundred percent on that too. I got a good Ganoush's daughter. Uh, she's oh, yeah. Cool. We'll, we'll yeah, talk about yeah, it in a couple um, sections for now. But uh, but speaking of Ganoush, Rothman, let's all take a trek, head off, find ourselves within the woods. What the hell happened to you? Cheryl, what's the matter with you? Did something in the woods do this to you? No, it was the woods themselves. They're alive, Ashley. The trees. They're alive. Ash, what an idea. Okay, well, this is the character. <laughs> so technical. Well, you know, this is the character, uh, Mrs. Sylvia Ganesh. No, but this is, we're going to talk about Ganesh here, played by Lorna Raver. Uh, King's Dominion, for all of you Stephen King fans out there, she did the audiobook for Cujo. Oh. That's apparently very good. As far as I could tell, uh, not really Romanian in real life. And, I'm, and I think there's been some mention of some of the, the, the quote-unquote gypsy stereotypes that are in this movie, but I think that's kind of fallen by the wayside. It's, taking, it's a takeoff on the tropes. We can, we've established that, so we can kind of move on, I think, uh, on that note. What do we make of this performance, though, as, as Ganush and as kind of the recurring villain, or the, at least the stand-in villain, right, throughout the, throughout the movie? Uh, I, lo- I love how gross they make her yes. when you first yes. meet her. Yeah. It's just like, I think Sam, it's Sam Raimi just always trying to top himself in that scene. Every time you think it can't get more gross... It does. Well, that Ooh. makes me think of Evil Dead. Yeah. Yes. And I think oh, it's very topless of it all where you can laugh at it. And it's it, very much you? in line with the classic, like all those old school universal horror movies. Like in dealing, you know, it is dealing in stereotypes, uh, but it but is I definitely throwing why, back to that. I think that's why it's a little easier to swallow, pun intended, because <laughs> the, because it's, she's, it's so over the top. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From the get-go, with her taking her teeth out on the desk and all that stuff, you know, you're like, okay, we're not supposed to, this isn't like, re- this doesn't feel like reality, <laughs> Sam, we're, we're already Sam moved Raimi, into another realm. Sam Raimi doesn't believe all gypsies are like this. No. Yes, that's the thing. It's, 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 ridi- it's ridiculous, the whole thing is, it's as ridiculous as the Necronomicon, if you're looking at it, if you really want to go there. Uh, 
Yeah. I just think, oh, go Mike, sorry. Well, I, I, like you mentioned gross, Vanderbilt, and we, we just talked about this in our part four's discussion and how like when you go comedic, really the only alternative you can go in with horror to kind of stay streamlined is gross. What I like about this movie is that it, it leans in into the gross out horror, but also manages to stay scary. Like, mm-hmm. you know, for as many times as you kind of chuckle, most of it's like it's that sort of chuckle, like, you know, Ichabod Crane chuckling when he's mm. like walking through the fucking woods. Like it's very like it's very gallows humor-esque um, humor in this way. Well, yeah, like, you know, it's what countless directors have talked about, about horror with, you know, the, the humor as the release. Yes, you, you ratchet absolutely. people up. You get the big scare. Then you have a big laugh. It is like a roller coaster. It is a thrill ride. It is those teenage girls that I saw in the audience when I went to see this, just being totally engrossed with it. Oh my god, I hate this movie. I have a laugh. Chill out. Okay, let's see the next scene. Mm. Well, I mean, speaking of going back and forth, that scene in the parking garage—it's great. Oh which my god, is very funny in parts. But that scene where you're, it's Christine's point of view and you're watching the handkerchief floating and then the camera's following it and it just slowly shows the, sh- the silhouette of Miss Canoosh sitting in the back seat. There's no music. There's no quick cut close up of her. Yeah. She's just sitting back there. And that's what I'm talking about. That's like the genius of, of Sam Raimi's horror direction coupled with 30 seconds later, Mrs. Canoosh's staple popping out of her eyelash. I mean, and we're, now we're laughing again. That I think, again, people have been trying to capture that over the last decade, 20, 30 years, really. And it's just too singular. It's like when people are quote-unquote Lynchian, usually that's an insult. Mm -hmm. Because only David Lynch is David Lynch. And I feel like in a lot of cases, only Sam Raimi can do Sam Raimi. It's true. I mean, you even see like a lot of Ash dialogue pop in here from, from Loman. Like the, I beat you, you old bitch. The honey, just keep the coffee coming, or I'll give you a tip you won't forget. <laughs> that kind of stuff. But also, if we're if we're still within the woods, sorry, I like diverting. But the creature capture all aspect of, I think the Delta is scary as hell in this. Yeah, <laughs> it's, Delta, it's like fright. You're like, oh man, it's right there. And I love how the license plate is. It's nine 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 five one, and if you flip it, it's it is six six six. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> I like that. I didn't catch that. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah I, I I think. It is obviously it's very gross out. Ganesh is just disgusting. Like, and then everything they do with her, her body after she's dead, it's just oh, so over the top. I mean, the the punching the the her hand like goes down her throat, yeah. like almost up to the elbow. And I think see, some of the uh, you know special effects are, are dated now, obviously. But and and maybe if there had been more practical effects, this would have just been like a complete classic. But. Yeah, she's, a lot uh, of stuff is cl- uh, is like the the dead body falling on top of her and all yeah. the chemicals pouring into her mouth. That's practical. Yeah, I do love that recurring bit of just, and that's just <laughs> him just you know leaning in his Stooges humor, where it just continues to keep falling on her chin, uh, the ripping of the hair, the the puking, like that repetition there. By the time they do it, I think the third time. I'm just cackling. I'm, I'm yeah, exactly. I'm, it's, it's, it's great. Fun. It's That's fucking fun. great. Yeah. The practical effects are so good that when you do see that CG, it does. You notice it sticks it. out. It sticks. It out. does. Yeah. 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 Um, I like the shadow. The shadow is definitely CGI, right? I was trying to decide like if they did oh, some lighting yeah. tricks, right? Oh, yeah. No, I think that that probably. Is, but that looks good. I think it's it easier so to get creepy. away with a, a CGI shadow, and it's also oh, we're kind of jumping ahead, but let's do it now. I think that scene. Um, when the when the boy 
is being dragged out at the beginning and the, and the use of shadows in that scene is extremely mm-hmm. effective. And I'm sure yes. that that was all Ooh. CGI, but yeah. good job there. Like that's a good, that's an example. Like this yeah. CJ can work, you know, it's worked a million times. Like I'm really breaking ground here. CGA, I mean, it can work, but like, thanks Justin. more to the, more yeah, to the point welcome. of our podcast. Like th- th- it's essentially deadites. Like, by the end of the movie, yeah. oh, when they're all about gathering around doing the seance. And I mean, I mean, that was literally when I texted you guys and I said, eh, what about, Drag me to hell because watching it, I'm like, same thing. Yeah, it's the fucking, it's the deadites. Like, and it made me wonder on that note. Like, man, I kind of do wish we saw more like people being dragged into hell, like in the Evil Dead franchise. Like, how cool would that have been? Technically, we get two because in Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday, (laughs) which is part of the it is the the canon. Jason Uh, is dragged to hell as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. Well, before we get dragged to hell. Let's move on to our next category, in which uh, we're going to talk about the aforementioned deadites as well as knights in a category that we call, flip it, knights and deadites. One by one, we will take you. <laughs> so I guess one of the, the true uh, knights of this production is Professor Clayton Clay Dalton, played by the always likable, affable Justin Love. Long. I find it funny that this professor wants to take her to a, a cabin in the woods. Did anybody mm-hmm. catch that? Yeah, that was a good one. Nice little one. It, do you, it, this is the West Coast, right? Because it's 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 yeah, definitely it's technically like Pasadena. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You remember when uh, Apple tried to convince us that Justin Long was the cool guy? Hey, hey I Justin always Long thinking, made a lot of money making those commercials for a long time. So I'll tell you, the, <laughs> I know we right can't thing. talk about this movie, but man, when I first saw Jeepers Creepers, like I thought he was like the fucking coolest lead. I, I, I was like, who is this guy? Like, first off, he's definitely my type of guy. So, I'm, you know, there's that in that respect. He's, he's got that, that yeah, lanky look. You know what? I yeah, love he's, him. He's a little bit, a little bit dopey, I but love like him. lanky, but yeah, kind of like he does remind me a little bit like a goofier heart in it. Yeah, absolutely. And like and I and I just think he's he always kind of handles his own, you know? And I I don't know. He's perfect casting here because if you're he does the the sort of mixing of tones so well. And he does that in Jeepers Creepers. Like, you know, that movie is pretty dark and and, and disturbing, and yet his levity keeps it grounded. And he does the, and I that's so he's a perfect addition to yeah. this you know, movie. For he, me. His performance is great in that you never dislike him. You do buy him no. as the affable likable husband yeah you know? and his reaction at the end sells that fucking ending so well like well he's yeah, he say, never, there's another yeah, version of this movie where he's the lead mm-hmm. like especially around this time like mac mac do you remember the first time you saw justin long because he's been around for almost 25 years now when you really look at the filmography stuff I've got. I, I can know, tell you what it probably was. I know that we. Oh, I, I know, know. It was something because I remember when I saw him pop up in Cheaper's Keepers. I was like, "Oh yeah," but I cannot remember what Galaxy Quest. I, I, well, I know, no, I know, Quest. I know another one. Isn't huh. he? Isn't he also in? Uh, there's some Pete and Pete Dominion here. Isn't he also in Ed? He was in Ed. Yeah. Yes. Um, Wait, what's the Pete and Pete connection? Because I think they do the the, the that was Will McRobb show. Oh, I didn't know that. Hmm. Oh, I used to watch episodes of that show mm. when I was yeah. younger. Michael Ian Black was on that, too. Yeah. You know what, what's really depressing, though? You, you know, Vanderbilt, you scoff. You say that people are trying to convince us that Justin Long was the cool guy. He dated Drew Barrymore. And I, I, I learned this in my discovery. He dated Lauren Mayberry from Churches for a couple of years. So 
doesn't get much cooler than that. Uh, he's got my vote. He's he's a cool guy, Vanderbilt. I can't I can't join you on this one. I mean, he seems nice enough, but there's nothing about him that feels cool to me. I don't know. Uh, we gotta we gotta hang out with him sometime. We should. I uh, his his introduction. It's so screenwriting 101. Like it, it's it, you you know I'm talking like 70s 80s screenwriting 101 because that office scene where you you know he's first introduced basically foreshadows and signals the entire movie. Like mm. the paperclip thing of him being forgetful, it just kind of foreshadows that chilling ending. And then you also get obviously the coin with that he's going to have like that that plays into at the end. That's the Beverly Hills Cop thing where they introduce it in the first scene or the first act. And then it comes and plays back in the in the third. Yeah, I've heard of Chekhov's gun, but Christine's button. I mean. Christine's button. That's what it is, you know. <laughs> yeah, I love him in this, and I and I think that I don't know. This is like a perfect era for Justin Long because I feel like these roles kind of vanish like four or five years later for for the for this type of actor. Well, they become Netflix series. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's and these. Yeah, that's. Yeah. that's I will say, thankfully, Justin Long never got all jacked up for a Marvel movie. Right? Thank God. He really you know? he looks the same. Honestly. He could have been Spider-Man, honestly. Like, yeah. I would have bought him as Spider-Man. I will say it's funny looking at the rest of his cast because they all kind of just they pop in and out. We don't have to spend too much time on them. But we should definitely run down some of these names because I've got some fun facts behind the, the actors at the very least. And I learned that the, the actor who plays Ram Joss, the Stasir, Good turn here in this movie. Oh, what a performance. Rao. Love him. Great. Yeah. A lot of fun. You think he's going to be in and out, but he sticks around. And I love, yeah, what I love about his performance is that he does a good job of, oh, we can do this and save you. And then it always comes, no, no, you're still fucked. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's how the, the resolutions keep happening. But I like that he's still, he, he's, he's truly a seer, but he's also truly a con man. At the same time. That's, and that's what they were talking about in that Slater article. Like, they're all, everybody here is trying to make money, you know, at the end of the day, no matter I who they screw over. I'm kind of wondering, it's weird, but, you know, D'Lap Rao, like, why he didn't have a bigger career. I mean, like, this is a huge year for, I mean, he's in Avatar later that year. He's in Inception the following year. And then he kind of just vanishes. And that's it. And he's going to be in the next two Avatar movies, but he Maybe didn't really why. do anything else. Yeah, he's you probably know. been filming the fucking Avatar movies for 20 years. <laughs> That's probably why. Yeah. Poor bastard. They got okay, him. Then we got the great... Uh, Cameron's got him like Jesse in the final seasons of Breaking Bad, making oh, meth God. in the fucking basement. <laughs> making blue. Yeah. Hey, they're doing blue down there, too. <laughs> oh, for my Avatar. God. They're making right. unobtainium. All right, let well. me just run through these, these last characters here. Um, Mr. Jim Jacks, who's Christine's boss, played by the great David Pamer. Love Pamer. He's great always good. Director. Big 90s run for David Pamer. Max Slickers. No, I just love that line when (laughs) Christine yells out, No, it was my manager, Jim Jacks. Like, actually says his name. (laughs) That's cracking up. Um, Listen to this 90s run, though, for David Pamer. This is insane. Mr. Saturday Night with Billy Crystal. He was nominated for this, by the way. David Pamer's Mm -hmm. nominated for Mr. Saturday Night, Best Supporting Actor. Searching for Bobby Fischer. Quiz Show. Get Shorty. American President. Nixon. Uh, you're forgetting the hurricane. You're for, you're, Come on. Why are you starting it with Slitty Slickers? Like, you this know, the 90s run. Yeah, 91. Oh, those yeah. 91? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, oh, because he was one of the people that went on the, uh, the trip or something with them? Uh, yeah, well, he's the guy that the, it's, he's uh, Ira Shalowitz, which is their oh, Ben the and Jerry's. Ira Shalowitz character. Well, I forgot. you know, <laughs> well, he does pop up in, uh, in Slickers too. So, well, as, that look, it's a Castle why... Rock production. I have to rep it. So, you know. Listen, that explains why he's in Mr. Saturday Night, probably because he got along with Billy Crystal. You know, yeah, there's a moment. Um, 
there's a moment in this movie with Pamer where he sends uh, Christine out to get lunch. Yeah, that when I was kinda, yeah. I was working as a <laughs> what was my position? Uh, I was a it was it was an accounting position, but I was essentially I didn't realize I was a secretary until ah. that until the day the bosses sent me out to get them lunch and didn't even buy me a fucking sandwich. Oof. Like, couldn't even say, and get yourself something? Man, fuck mm. you. I, yeah. no, nothing funny about that. Just still mad about no, it. Nothing, fucking nothing funny about 10 that. 10 years there's later. No, that's, there's, no, there's no gray area there's no there. Joke, there's no joke. There's no gray area, man. Fuck them. It was the law offices of John C. Bonowitz. Look them up sometime. They're a bunch of scumbags. Well, now we'll be held for libel, so let's make sure we get that. Uh, <laughs> I, de- I derailed your, your payment rundown, so I, I apologize. Well, but. let's keep running down here. We got another Academy Award nominee, Adriana Barazza, who plays Sean Sandana. She's the woman who leads the seance at the end, the older version of the woman from the very beginning of the movie. She was nominated for Babel, nominated for Best Supporting Actor in that movie. She's good in that movie, from what I remember. It's a very... Believe it or not, a very depressing movie. If you've ever seen it, you should check it out. For real. Some people, some people like really hate that movie, and I don't get it. I think it's pretty good. Anyway, that's all their story. Uh, Mike Rothman's arguable Stone Cold Fox, Boana uh, Novokovic, as Elenka Ganush, the granddaughter of Mrs. Ganush. Um, you mentioned Hollow Ground earlier. She's in The Hollow, the film The Hollow. She's in the film Devil. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, and she's also in the Margot Robbie two for I Tanya and Birds of Prey in minor roles. So we oh, appreciate wow. her. She looks wonderful. Thank you for being in the film. We wish you all the best. Reggie Lee, who plays Stu Rubin. Oh, but Stu is a pretty uh, a well rendered character, little sleaze bag of the movie. I just <laughs> He's such an asshole. He, he's, he's so, so good. great at that character, oh, though. I job. love that character. Um, and when he, <laughs> he's when he comes in and, and cries at the end when she th- thinks he's caught, yes, that's. <laughs> A good bit. Oh, that, yeah, that's good. When he comes right around the at the diner, and he comes back again, and he's like, "Are you sure that?" Yeah, <laughs> it's so, I mean, it's, well, he plays it so well. Reggie Lee popped up in Dark Knight Rises. He was in Star Trek the same year, two thousand nine Star Trek. Big year. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know what the status of that movie is at this point. Uh, who cares? But more importantly, oh god, here we go. More importantly. Of course, he played Lance in The Fast and the Furious, 2001. Oh, wow. I'll take my second least favorite Fast and the Furious movie is actually the very first Fast and the Furious movie. So there you go. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. I just got a text. Um, oh, no. It's, whoa. Uh, I didn't realize mm-hmm. I was on a, a text. It was, it's from David Pamer. Oh, um, David. And he said, oh. uh, you know, I was really appreciating the praise I was getting from Justin on, on my <laughs> 90s run. <laughs> Until that, until you you fucked everything up by having to bring up my least favorite movie, City Slickers. So I, you know, I, I don't know if you wanted to actually still do the 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 '90s payment run because it's a it's it is a pretty fucking well, epic. I didn't run, want to bring up because you know. we would have talk about you know Bruno Kirby falling out with Billy Crystal that is and being true. replaced <laughs> by John Lovitz. It gets really sad. Then we have to talk talk, talk about News Radio, Andy Dick, right. and Phil Hartman dying, and it's not fun. Well, and we'll we'll be able to cover all that when we do our City Slickers two for uh, in the future. <laughs> And obviously yeah. on Patreon, don't forget patreon.com backslash Halloweenies pod, and we're going to be doing our Pamer pod. Oh. Uh, covering every single movie that David Pamer's ever been in. That's going to take about three years, so it's going to be well worth the, uh, the tier that you sign up for. Can't wait till we get to Mumford. Uh, speaking um, of tier, though, top tier character actor in my book, Chelsea Ross as Leonard Dalton, of course, from Hoosiers, 
Major League, Basic Instinct, Simple Plan. Ever heard of it? Sam Raimi movie? The Gift. No. Ever heard of it? Sam Raimi movie? A great Tales from the Crypt episode directed by Tom Holland with Patricia Arquette from Dream Warriors fame. And he plays uh, Connie Hilton in Mad Men, a recurring role. Great character actor. It was very nice of him to pop up here in a very uh, small role. Love him. Uh, and his wife in the film, Trudy Dalton, played by Molly Cheek, a.k.a. Jim's mom in the American Pie movies. Oh, that's, that's right. where I recognize her. Okay, right. okay. Can, I had a question. Just have one. Yeah, go ahead. Do you think Chelsea Ross was one of the few people to recognize that like Major League Two is not going to be good? And was I like, was, right, nah, I'm not going to. He, 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 I, I have the call right here. He's like, uh, Wesley, uh, are you doing this thing or what's going on? I mean, I don't know about <laughs> this. They're bringing some other people back. Wesley yeah. said no, and Chelsea said, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm going to do Tales yeah. Crypt. Uh, I love Chelsea Ross. Love him. Great character actor. I can't believe he's like 80 years old now. He's still yeah. going. He was in his like late 40s in Major League. It was it's fucking crazy. Yeah. The, the Jamie Moyer of the film for all you baseball fans out there who will get that reference. Here's a little fun bit here, though. The voice of Lamia, Art Kimbrough, did a lot of voice work over the years. There's, a, there's actually a Halloween connection. Does anybody know what the connection is? Without, no jokes. What's the actual Halloween connection? Anybody know? God, uh, I don't think you do. It? He was, of course, he played the character Henry. In the film Dead On Relentless 2, which is a film franchise starring Dylan Leo Grace? Rossi. Oh, Leo Rossi. Bud Jamie Lee Curtis. From Halloween 2. Come on, oh, here a, we go. That's a connection if I've ever heard one. I thought so. I thought it was pretty <laughs> yeah, good. That it is, is certainly I a thought connection. he actually was in the movie or something. <laughs> I, I'm shocked that Vanderbilt is not in on the early VHS franchise days of the Relentless films. Oh, you know what? I've, ne- Foster. I've never actually seen them. That's a William Lustig joint. I've been meaning to check those yeah. out. Uh, Judd Nelson is in the original. He's in the first one, yeah. And then in the sequels years later, I think like the kid from the first one becomes a killer or something like that. Spoiler alert for all of you relentless dead-on fans or, or would-be fans. And here's something else. I don't even remember seeing her in this movie unless it was so brief. Octavia Spencer's in this? Yeah, I was just about to say, she's literally, there's a scene at the bank where Alison Lohman's talking to someone, and in the background you see two of her co-workers talking, and I was like, oh shit, it's Octavia Spencer. I didn't remember her being in it, and then I thought maybe she'd have more, but it's just total, she's just, you know, cameo in the movie, or, whatever, or not cameo, but like she was just, you know, one of her well, early this roles or whatever. Well, yeah, three Academy Award nominees in it. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Good on that casting I, director. Before we move on from the cast, because I feel like you're coming at the end here, right, Justin? Oh, yeah. I'm done with you guys. I don't know where to bring this up. And I should have brought it up when we talked about Christine. But I I read an article. I can't remember the article. I'll try to find it and post it. But I went back and I when I was watching the movie, I was really like, okay, well, is this something that they just are imposing on the film? Or is it something I'm just noticing more now that it's been brought to my attention? But and I don't know what they're trying to say with it, but like there's so much stuff about like food and possible eating disorder stuff like put in here. Like there's so much focus on food in this yeah, movie, strange. which I was and I, and I thought maybe it was just someone taking it and running with it. But like there really is like like no, she's come from this farm and she has like this. Yeah, but like. I don't know what they're trying to say with it, I guess. No, she's it's trying because to, I, I said at the beginning, I think she said I, the pressures on society about her losing her accent and trying to, and trying to stay thin. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. I think that's what it but is, I, and it's overwhelming at the end. Yeah, there's just so much of a focus on it that I didn't pick up on when I first watched it. Like, I don't know. Oh, it's she's just, even shamed. She's even shamed by um, the daughter. And this is the daughter. Granddaughter. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's the, throughout like, the movie. I just wanted to run run down the, <laughs> the stuff. There's the. The, the dreams of Ganoush throwing bugs into her mouth, the fly buzzing around her stomach, the green bile into her mouth, the fact that she's a vegetarian, animal sacrifice instead of, you know, eating veggies, you know, that she makes the rich cake, the food's delivered. When the harvest cake comes out, that's when the curse seems to come back and she coughs up the fly. She's attacked by Ganoush, sticks her arm in her, in her mouth again. Mm. Then, uh, you know, we find her eating an entire box of ice cream when she comes back. <laughs> you know, I just didn't really pick up on like how much of it is like focused on, on that idea, I guess. But yeah, I just, it just was really apparent to me this time. That's oh, a yeah, good that's definitely t- a recurring no. theme. Yeah, that's, the movie. It, it is really curious, Mac. Like I, I, cause I, I just thought it was like more of like, oh, let's just add some more pathos into her character. And you think like, oh, you know, it adds her as just more, a little more tragedy too, because she does come from like kind of a, a, a cursed background, if you will. And they even bring up the fact that like her mother, her dad's dead, and her mother's yeah. you know alcoholic. It's, it adds the tragedy to the character who's who's done a bad thing, but doesn't just make her this evil person. You know what I mean? But it's also like Justin's saying the whole like chasing the American dream. Like you have to give up almost everything about yourself if you want to be this and become this and have, be accepted by yep. everyone else, you know, uh, to get what you want, you have to, like Justin said, sell your soul essentially. Yeah. The, the, the eating though is cause there, the, the, it's just a lot. It is all throughout the movie. It's that it's a, that's a, it's an intriguing yeah, stuffing take. the button down her throat later yeah. on, you know, like it, it's all kind of, I mean, if we want to keep going prevalent. on this, it's, yeah. it's, <laughs> what do we do when we eat? We're consuming. It's consuming. It's consumption. Yeah. It's a smart yeah. movie. If you really do peel back the layers, there's, there's legitimate layers there. It's not like we're placing something on it. Right. It, like it makes sense. Like this, all these things make sense when you start to peel back the, the horror elements from it and then look at the storytelling with the, the crisis, eating, conformity, the whole deal. It's 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 a solid movie. What can I say? And it's only ninety minutes, by the way. Did you pick up on that? Love it. Lean me in ninety. Well, let's go to what is an undoubtedly the easiest answer that we will all have, and we will all share it. it unless somebody wants to be cute and zags, all right. But let's go to the next category: best kill. <laughs> Life is hard and dangerous, and sometimes you just got to chop off somebody's head to survive. We are eating a giant shit sandwich right now. Are you good down here for a minute while I try and unfuck the situation? I got it. Go. One, two, three. The, the ending. ending. Yeah. <laughs> Vanderbilt. However, I was going to say the cat. <laughs> you see it. That's what's funny I, I, about I, it. That's what's good about it. And it's shocking. I, I know it's that. great. The ending is the best. It's Come so, on. it's unreal yeah. how much of a guttural punch it is to you because it's so fucking cruel. The setup is wonderful, even down to like her getting her dress put together. I know. And then, but here, here, <laughs> I, I didn't know where to put this. But if we're gonna talk, we don't do scariest scene, I guess. But I did want to highlight the the scene where. Lamia's attack on Christine in her bedroom, which I actually feel we were talking about the Exorcist earlier. I actually feel like it's it's it reminded me a lot of like when Chris checks in on Reagan and um and you know all the furniture gets mm. shoveled and everything. 
I think that scene is one of Raimi's scariest sequences uh, to date. Like, I, I think that whole way it pans out, we talked a lot about thematic value in this movie, but like, think about just how many layers there are to that scene. I mean, it's broad daylight, the afternoon, which you think is like the furthest away from demons. It's in her bedroom, which you think would be like the most comfortable place in the world and ours by proxy if we're thinking of it, you know, psychologically. And then her loved one doesn't respond. And to top it off, her fucking cell phone dies in seconds, leaving her hopeless. Like, it's just, it's just a really well done scene. It's not a death per se, but I just wanted to highlight that scene because I rewatching it again this morning. I was like, fuck, this is just a great sequence and it's fucking scary. It, there's no comedic value in it. It's just scary. And I love it. So. Look, guys, I'm just saying this is one of the most memorable animal deaths this side of Milo and Otis. <laughs> <laughs> this side of Milo and Otis. Yeah, I heard there was 30 less cat deaths in this particular movie than there were in Milo and Otis, though. No cats were flung off of cliffs. I wouldn't say if you if we were being cute, but I, I did kind of expect, after watching this again for the first time in forever, I did kind of expect someone to say the boy's death in the beginning. Because that's that, also, yeah, sets the tone. that is relentless and brutal and really does set the tone. Nobody's safe. You almost safe. feel like, are they going to like get this boy out? Is that going to be wrapped up? Because when we see the woman again, we're like, okay, well, is there going to be some situation where she gets dragged down to hell, but then she comes back out with the boy or something? You know oh, what I mean? God. Like, like I, I didn't know where exists, they were going know? with that, but knowing, thinking, going back to it and thinking, and that boy gets down, dragged down to Helen, and you don't know why, right? There's no she. They'd bring him in in the beginning, just saying he's seeing visions that it. No, are. they do. They explain it. Is he? He, he stole he, he, something from um, somebody oh. who practices the magic, and he tries to give it back, but she rejects it and curses him. Oh, that's they right. Do. That's right. They do. But that's that's relentless. I mean, so that I'm is saying it's just, even if you're an innocent boy like that who does a dumb mistake as a kid. <laughs> I know. I know. You're, you're so not you're like this. That's why I feel like at the end, it really does. You know. Uh, earn it because you're like okay well this boy who unwittingly did this thing and then tried to give it back couldn't survive like why do we think she's gonna make it no, you know, what I mean? know. Like, yeah and i love that i love it but yeah the ending for me is just so good uh, i know and 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 in the ending obviously there's a lot of special effects and so we've got to go to our category which we discussed so special <laughs> effects and you know it's a category that we keep teasing about because i think we had the the title f- really since Elm Street, so it was called something else when we did Halloween, right? I forgot yeah, what we called it. I don't remember what it is anymore. But we called it great graphics for Elm Street and even Omics. We thought it was a funny bit because that's what Freddie says in Freddie's J. You know, great graphics, you know. Just so dumb. Uh, talking about the video game that Breck and Meyer's in. So for this episode, though, we are going to call it uh, great graphics. Ah! <laughs> what do you know? I beat my high score. Uh, never gets old so greg nicotero and howard berger from knb we talked about them a lot over the last four seasons we don't need to talk about them again hey good makeup job though they did a great makeup job especially on mrs ganoush specifically The, the the fingernails and the hand love it great job guys let's talk a little bit about Bruce Jones, who was a visual effects supervisor. Um, and his, I, I, let me ask this question. Is this his horror peak? Because his other horror movies that he worked on include Spawn, An American Wolf, and Paris. <laughs> uh, Son of the Mask. <laughs> Smoking. Ghost House. <laughs> <laughs> uh... 
Good timing on that one. Uh, Ghost House's Own, The Messengers. The film Classic. It. Ever heard of it? Stephen King's It, directed by Andy Muschietti. Oh. And speaking of It, Michael Jackson's Is This It? He did a lot of the visual effects for that that tour mm. film that came out. Well, the, the would-be tour film. I'd say it's his peak. And this this goes back to what you were saying, Rothman, about the... the I, about the, the big bedroom scene, the daylight horror scene with Christine. I said, Christine being flung around in her room has better visual effects than anything I saw in the new Doctor Strange movie. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I don't understand what has happened in the last 13 years where that looks more realistic than anything in these $7 billion budget movies. I don't, I don't know. Is it shortcuts? I, I don't know. i just baffled by it. But that's my take on the on that particular scene. And then Jim Schwamm was a special effects supervisor, and he's more of an action person, but he did work on Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies. So I think the visual effects here, for the most part, works so well. Like Vanderbilt said, when there is that rare instance of CGI, it does kind of stick out like a sore thumb, you know? Well, the bad CGI, yeah, but- the one I think of is the one in the shed where she gets all the goop on the face because yeah. that just oh, works yeah. better with practical effects but all the cgi yeah. during the seance it works it's fine and i think I, it helps i was gonna say yeah but it helps with the intensity mm-hmm. that's what makes it an r-rated movie versus a pg-13 movie right mm-hmm. i agree yeah the, Mac. the moment which i think is really understated and i always forget it happens is during the seance when the other spirits come out oh yeah and I just like that one that one Victorian ghost comes out and does the scare. But it's like so brief. It's like fine. That was fine to me. But I do love that. I do love that when there's a shot where all the and that's not a special effects shot. It's just the people are slowly walking towards the table and it's all the ghosts. And that shot. one ghost yeah. has the trombone. It's so nuanced and weird. But yeah, the special effects are fun. I feel like they're used for the most part to in the background and to like kind of auxiliary stuff. And like Vanderbilt said, there are the moments where it's kind of in your face. That's seen the sheds, one of them where, but also that's kind of one of those things where it's like, did that really happen? So, you know, mm. the fact that it's none of it's there and there's nothing on here, like right afterwards, like that kind of also, yeah, I'm okay with the, when you're using special effects in that sense, it's almost supposed to be fake, but yeah, some of it's a little bit you can tell. You From can what just, I remember, you can tell in, that then, shed, you know? in that shed scene when that splatter hits her, I think it's in slow motion too, which probably doesn't help it. From what I can remember, but no, you might be thinking of the scene from it. Oh god, um, god that's angel in the morning, fucking the, the slow motion scene. vomit. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, we're probably going to talk a lot about this during our, ex- our, our exorcist, our poltergeist episode, but uh, I feel like we should kind of give credit to like whoever in the SFX team, like. Uh, make shit move on its own because I, I think it's just so well done here and I just wish that more movies did that now I mean I feel like now it's they, they do the lazy route of just doing it all CGI with making shit throw across the room and shit like that but you can tell it's, it is being thrown like not even just Alice in the Moment but like things like objects are actually being thrown and you don't I don't know if it's like a safety hazard thing these days but like you know, when you look at it in this movie and again, what we'll talk about in Poltergeist, it, it does, it does a lot like yep. visually for you. And I, and I think it, it, it kind of affords a lot of atmosphere, but it also just sells the scare. And this movie, 
the stuff that moves around, I, I, I don't know what they did to do that. If it's like strings, I mean, obviously Raimi's a fucking pro at it because he did it nonstop in all the, the original Evil Dead movies. But bring that back more. <laughs> like, I, I just want to see things fall down. Like th- that stuff works for me. Like even a chair in the corner falling down is more unnerving to me than. I don't know, a fucking thing like Bagul or something like that, like popping up and, you know, <laughs> scaring Bagool. you or whatever, or whatever his name is, or what, you know. No, I think you're right. I think it's Bagul, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. What's the boy's name? Bagul from yeah. Sinister? That's yeah, not real. I think so. Is that real? But yeah, it's Bagul. His name is Bagul. Great name. Yeah. Victor Bagul, yeah. I think his name is. I just, you know. Uh, look, we always talk about this. It's the tangibility factor. Like, mm-hmm. I'd rather take something that I know is real than something I know has been rendered by a computer. <laughs> Old man yells the cloud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of tangibility, I love to get behind, at least in my old dri- driving days, get behind the, the wheel of a car. You know, grab onto that, that wheel, that leather wheel. Maybe it's a little hot because the sun's been shining on it for too long. But I like that feeling. But a good way to keep uh, wheels and cars a little more uh, cool is to, is to park them in the woods where the wood cover is uh, blocking them from the sun. And as we all remember... What vehicle was taken into the woods in the Evil Dead? Well, I'll answer it for you. It was the Delta, which means that we're going to be giving our My final God. thoughts. <laughs> what the hell was that? Are you trying to kill us? Hey, don't blame me. Just steering wheel. Damn thing jerked right out of my hand. You can't understand that. I had this thing in for a tune-up yesterday, and they said they'd go over everything. Yeah, well, you better take it back, because the damn thing don't work. The only thing that does work is this lousy horn. <laughs> Let's kick it off. Let's do this a one to five. Uh, what are we going to call this? One to five. Um, Bagools. Handkerchiefs? No. <laughs> <laughs> or buttons. 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 Or one to five buttons. One to five buttons. What better way to put a button on this episode? All right, Mac. Oh. One to five cursed buttons. What are you giving it? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote Christine here. I'm, I'm going to get some, and we do. I'm going to give it four, four buttons. I, it's really entertaining. There's really little to nothing that I don't like about the film. I think that again, the, some of the special effects are a little dated, but it's a it's a really really fun time at the movies. <laughs> wow, this is like boilerplate. Peter Travers. No, no, no. But I mean, chills, like, thrills, we've, been talking, we've been talking. I mean, we thought this this was going to be a short episode. Now we're already it's already two hours twenty minutes in, and we've been talking about this movie and everything. And this is all considerably that, short when you think about our other episodes. Actually, this yeah, is that's short. true. That is true. But no, I, I really enjoyed the movie. I think her performance is great. I le- it left me thinking toward, towards the end of the movie. I was like, where has Alison Lohman been? Then I always remember, oh, yeah, she retired. <laughs> because I, I was like, I'm like how, how is she not in a lot of other things after this? Or at least horror properties because she's great. Justin Long is great. The, 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 I always thought, looked back thinking, oh, this is only a couple people in this movie, really. So this will be easy. There's a ton of people in this movie. They just do their job so well that you don't re- – you know what I mean? They serve the the story, and it just moves the brutal, brutal ending I'll always remember. So, yeah, for me, it's four buttons with maybe a little uh, ganoush bile <laughs> ganoush Ooh. shipping down on top <laughs> Sounds of those good to buttons. Me. All right, Mike Vanderbilt. So fun and mean is a tough line to tread. And Sam Raimi balances it expertly. Dragon to Hell doesn't feel so much as a return to form because as Raimi had been cranking out quality since Army of Darkness, you know, and its botched release. Uh, but it, it, with tenacity, 
he just kept going at it, right? So this is more Raimi going back to his roots, going back to the sandbox and wanting to show off not only what that he can still do the we didn't even talk about this, the spooka blast as he uh, described this film. But he want, he has more skills in the toolbox with the advances that have been made in special effects. And even if the CGI doesn't always land, the overall vibe and pace of the film never slows down, so there's no dwelling on it. Raimi said he intended to make a horror picture for teenagers, and it's impressive how, like I said, it balances that tone, which uh, has the film always teetering on the R rating, but that light touch kind of reining it back into PG-13. It's impressive how mean and fun Drag Me to Hell is, and that Raimi's, you got a Raimi, Raimi's imagination on full display. Also, love when a movie makes good on its title, literally dragging a child and a woman to hell. Uh, three and a half buttons. All right, Mike Rothen. Uh, all right, so I have a little preamble that I prepared, so hear me out, because I do have a point. So I'm usually, as we know, the James Cameron defender on this podcast, big time, uh, particularly when you all start bringing up Avatar, as you already were joking before. <laughs> what is this? What, you think, what, I, I've got this guy as like the fifth greatest I know that, but when it comes to Avatar, I'm always the one that has to stand. Anyway. That's true. That's right. You are the only one that has to defend. Yeah, I'm exactly. glad you're here to defend Avatar. Well, I think you, you and D-Leap D- Rao, I think. You, yeah, exactly. You well, anyway, what I can't dismiss is the fact that he's wasted the majority of his life chasing the epic. I think we all agree on that. I think mm. Avatar 1 and Avatar 2 to 4 or 5 or whatever the fuck it is. I think it's... I think that's true. And I think it's even more depressing when you actually look back at his career and see what Cameron can do when he just simply stops and has fun for an hour. And that was True Lies which just so happens to be one of the best blockbusters of the 90s. And I, I bring this up because I feel like you can make the same argument with Raimi. And I think Drag Me to Hell is evidence of this. I think it's, it, you know, it's just as Vanderbilt said. It's, it's lean, it's mean. It's got everything we love about him in this movie. And you could kind of make the argument that he was ref- wrestling with his own demons in this movie, no pun intended. But I think what it really feels like is like it's a homecoming for the filmmaker. You know, like kind of like when, um, you know, Zach Braff goes home in, in Garden State to find himself and listens to Simon and Garfunkel and yada, yada, yada. But hindsight's twenty twenty, And we know that sadly for Raimi, as we discussed earlier, he didn't really find his manic pixie dream girl would drag me to hell if we're to keep the metaphor going. And we can kind of see the proof of that in the aforementioned Oz the great and powerful and pretty much all the other unproduced projects that never came into fruition over the last 10 years, the, the likes of which I didn't even discuss. You could find a, literally a Wikipedia page that says all his unproduced projects. And I only named the ones leading up to drag me. I'll go look at the other ones after it. It's kind of depressing. What's not depressing is this. I, I drag me to hell. I, I mean, this movie so fucking good. All these years later, I love how gross it is. I love how scary it is. I love how funny it is. And, but better yet, I love it for its singularity. Um, you know, it's a one-stop shop, an open and shut case. And that simplicity, to me, is really inviting, especially after we've sat through so many fucking re- rebate, reboots, re- rebate, <laughs> rebates too, uh, remakes, requels, and prequels. And I, I don't know, I, I guess you could make its connections to Evil Dead here, as we've been doing in the episode. I think it's, you know, you can take them and leave them. It's there if you want to make something out of it. And I think to me, that's kind of the best kind of sequel, um, you know, because ultimately one of the reasons why I want to do this episode is because I do think that you could say this is Evil Dead 4. They had the script ready for Evil Dead 4 in the beginning. They could have made Evil Dead 4. They made Drag Me to Hell. And I think it's a better, the, the better route that Raimi took. Mm. It's something new, but it was familiar enough where we can see the breadcrumbs as we've obviously outlined here. 
So I'll take that any day over a standard sequel. I, I just think it's such a much better use of the foundation. And so for me, this is a win-win. Four buttons and an envelope that you could put all those buttons in and keep them away from all the bad takes that this will inevitably get in the years and years to come. So love it. I'm glad we got to talk about it. I'm really glad we got to talk about it because I think this is a great button to mm. Raimi's career if you think about it. So yeah, in many ways it is. And as I said earlier, the anticipation for this movie when I saw it was high for me personally. And oh God, it's so rare, you know, when either filmmakers come back after a long absence or when franchises come back after a long absence that they really live up to the expectations. But this movie lived up to expectations when I saw it in 2009. And even as a replay factor, a rewatchable factor, as it were, uh, 13 years later, still just as good as I thought it was 13 years ago. And I appreciate even more now than I maybe even did in 2009, if that was possible. I can't name 15 directors who have more solid movies than Sam Raimi. And as of right now, uh, this is the last solid Sam Raimi movie for me personally. Um, again, <laughs> to be fair, haven't seen Oz, The Great and Powerful, but uh, based on what everybody <laughs> in the world has ever told me, maybe it won't be number uh, number eight in terms of solid movies. <laughs> the practicality of the effects look terrific. The CGI is not horrifically dated like so many movies from the 2000s. The performances are engaging. They did a great job of not casting superstars in this movie, which they also could have gone down that route. I mean, Justin Long was the most famous person when you think about it. Uh, in this movie, Mr. Of cool. course, David Paymer is in it as well. Don't forget, <laughs> big daddy. I'm gonna cool. have to give this movie. <laughs> I give this movie four buttons out of five, with maybe one of those lower ganoush dentures smacked oh. on there with some gross sound effects to really top it off. Very good movie. I think we all liked it a lot. And and this, by the way, I mean, Rami was asked if there would ever be a sequel, and he said, "No." I mean, the movie really is. The movie definitive, the, the whole franchise dragged me to hell definitively ends where that movie ends. You could, you could do some other lame old curse movie, but it's over once that title card pops up at the very end one more time. And speaking of one more time, we can't really say that now because we've got a couple more Evil Dead movies to deal with throughout the rest of the year. And notably, we will also be tackling, I believe coming up next month, Ash vs. Evil Dead a show that Sam Raimi was also involved in, especially bad boy, Bobby Tappert and Bruce Campbell. Uh, that will be our July coverage. What else do we have coming up on Patreon though for, for June, Mike? I know we've got the great dark man commentary. Yes. Star studded, uh, hmm. dark man commentary. Oh yeah. I heard we've got a 40th anniversary episode on poltergeist, which I will begin my research tonight. Hmm. So I can't, ex- I, I imagine that is going to be pretty epic. I know it's a favorite amongst you all. Yeah. And I love oh, yeah. it too, but I, it's, you know, it's one of, I think it might be one of the most iconic movies I think we've done in behind the paywall, maybe as a, as a deep dive, right? right? I, I think, think you're definitely right. the yeah. biggest budgeted one, maybe, uh, no, Basic Instinct was a main feed. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it'll be exciting. I mean, I'm, I'm very intrigued to talk about it. Lots of discourse already this past few week, you know, this past week since it's been the anniversary. Of this, this, this. Uh, I can't this wait Saturday to was. talk about how Steven Spielberg directed it and Toby Hooper didn't. Oh, I well, know that, you better watch out because they're going to kill well, you if you do say that. Now, might, so. uh, well, that'll be interesting discussion, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. And we're also going to be behind uh, in, in the main feed. We're going to be releasing our Jaws commentary that's usually behind the paywall to try to show people, hey. This is what you're going to be getting if you if you subscribe to our Patreon because we got some really fun, engaging yeah. commentaries, and occasionally people show up. And on to them. let you know all these boutique Blu-ray labels know that 
you can offer we can we can come we can do a commentary absolutely we're as good as anybody I'm, I'm else ready. yeah I'm, I'm waiting to do it yeah i'll be more than happy to do commentary for the boogeyman 2 ghost house production i mean, I mean i'll do it this is i said it before this is infotainment information infotainment and <laughs> entertainment correct. together uh but not danger tainment right <laughs> No, that's that's like, relegated like to Buster Halloween Ram. Resurrection. Yeah. Oh, uh, Mike, we're doing. Aren't we doing? Uh, we're having a party this this uh, this month. Mm. Also, yes, we are. Oh, let me make sure that I, I've been. Is it the twenty eighth? Yes, I think you're right. Tuesday, June twenty eighth, we will be hosting a double feature at Cigars and Stripes out in beautiful downtown Berwyn, Illinois. Best wings in the Chicagoland area. Smoked meatball sandwiches, and we'll be showing a double feature of the Evil Dead Two and Army of Darkness. I absolutely fucked that up in the calendar. I said the Evil Dead. You know, and no, I, I saw that and I was like, "It makes <laughs> sense," you know. And we're gonna have a very cool, very uh, you're gonna love this, guys. Uh, a limited edition T-shirt from my man Toei Ear, who always does the T-shirts for us over at Cigars and Stripes. A limited edition Halloween Evil Dead Army of Darkness mashup. And uh, for those who haven't been there, we just showed Dead Alive, which also would fit into this season if we wanted mm-hmm. to cover it. I'm just saying, like, if there's that, you talked earlier about if anybody, like, only Raimi can do Drag Me to Hell. Like, if anybody else could, it would have been young Peter Jackson. But, young, young Peter yeah. Jackson. That's true. That's true. <laughs> we had a we well, had a great crowd for that one, and people, it's just a good time. Just a good time. If you want to watch, get to, who doesn't want to watch The Evil Dead Two and Army of Darkness with the Halloweenies? That's a great point, and I think we're all going to try to make an effort to be there as well. At the end of this month, so that'll be a fun reunion for all of us, to be honest with you. Real easy to get to from city downtown. It's a straight shot down Ogden. For all of you who don't live in the city, that's, what, that's why God invented Google Maps. <laughs> 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 well, look, you can also find a bunch of us over on the Losers Club. Uh, we're, we're, we got a fun summer coming up there with a couple uh, blockbuster looks. Check out the Losers Club Insta- Instagram and, and Twitter feeds, please, if you will. But until that day in which we come back to discuss a little bit more on Evil Dead. Uh, and when that day comes, I should say, we do hope that all of you will join us. Join us. Join us. This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.